Pick up a camera. Shoot something. No matter how small, no matter how cheesy, no matter whether your friends and your sister star in it, put your name on it as director. Now you're a director. Everything after that, you're just negotiating your budget and your fee. That's James Cameron. Ladies and gentlemen, variations thereupon. Stop scrolling aimlessly. Heat up that sweet and salty popcorn. Grab that bottle of beer, wine or Dr Pepper and get comfy on your sofa and enjoy this 4K IMAX 3D THX presentation of modern escapism. Welcome, my name is Big Cop Man, affectionately known as Biggie, and on today's pod I'm joined by a director known to be difficult to work with, a maverick, but amongst all of the chaos he creates, he delivers. It's Dumican. Hello, that is me nailed on that to be fair, definitely. <laughs> some, some people do call me maverick behind my back, I think, sometimes. <laughs> uh, so alongside him, I have a man known for his audio and technical accomplishments in cinema, even though he's blind as a bat. It's Gadget. How dare you? How very dare you? <laughs> yes, my ears are my, are my main selling point. Garrett? And finally, a director whose onset drinking antics are so truly legendary and yet somehow manages to deliver heartwarming cinematic masterpieces. It's Stig. Oliver Reed ain't got shit on me. <laughs> Hello. How are you, right? <laughs> I'm good. So, before we move on, um, and get into the uh, rest of the pod. Uh, I believe our Stig has prepared a statement that he'd like to read. So over to you, Stig. Uh, thank you, Biggie. Um, yes, so I do have a statement to read. Uh, dear Modern Escapers and listeners, uh, 30 Days or so ago, we recorded what would be our first Christmas show, an extended show where all six of us got together, had a few drinks, and did what we do best talk. Unfortunately, there was an incident on the show and copious amounts of whiskey were drained by one member, myself. This resulted in not only a god-awful hangover that took me nearly a week to get over, but my most heinous of crimes to date. I didn't save my recording. Luckily, we have an expert in control of the editing and Gadget was able to pull out a fantastic show with Zoom backups. So firstly, I'd like to apologise to Gadget for all the trouble I caused him. Secondly, I'd like to apologise to you dear listeners. Not for the excessive swearing, or the increasing volume of my voice, the slurring or the talking over people, but for the sheer audacity of saying that Love Actually wasn't that bad of a film. <laughs> I couldn't sleep with a sound conscious knowing that I'd said these words for all the world to hear, so I had to make amends, <laughs> and for that I apologise. And finally, since the show was released, there's been a lot of chatter about being stigged. Something I tried to rally against to start with, but have come to accept. So I welcome being stigged as a thing with open arms. I've had a lot of time to soul search and ponder the future, and I know sooner or later there'll be a time for me to retire the whiskey. So tonight, right here on Modern Escapism, in front of my esteemed cohorts and all you listeners, 
I have to announce that I will never retire the whiskey. I will only retire the whiskey when I'm dead in this chair. I love the whiskey. It's going nowhere. Woo! Stigged for life. Thank you very much for listening. And now back to your reg- regular scheduled programming. Wow. Uh, Stig's views do not represent the entirety of the modern escapism brand. But we will be using Stigged mercilessly for the rest of time. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, to the point the listeners have started doing that, which I love. <laughs> and I, actually, I uh, for some reason, I did watch Love Actually the day after that pod recording. And uh, apology not accepted, Stig. It's bloody awful. <laughs> I'll, I'll never forgive you for that. You know, you know, me, me and Pip were um, were, were mucking mucking around yesterday, and she um, would randomly doing impressions and like just saying silly voices and stuff like that. And she and she did pull out the oh, we we got you, we fucked you something rotten. You shouted out the secret Santa. Oh dear. <laughs> well, during Christmas, when so, my yeah. wife tried to get me to watch Love Actually, I managed to turn it around, and watch Die Hard. So. There you go. Good, good. You did well there. Yeah, I, I woke up the next day thinking I'd blacked out uh, because I couldn't remember recording. Well, had. no, I could remember everything we'd done. I just couldn't remember doing the um, inqu- uh, Inquisition. And I was like, I can't remember the Inquisition. I have no idea what I've said or anything. And then obviously watching it back and listening back, I was like, oh, I wasn't even there because I just logged off because I was so drunk. In fact, that's a good point because normally when... Any of us go out and get absolutely twatted. People don't generally film the whole event, so you rely on other no. people telling you what happened. But we actually had the entire <laughs> recording of everything that happened to you. Yeah, that was uh, some torturous watchback. Can, can, can you uh, look that coffee mug in the eye after this? The one that you poured three shots of your whiskey into and downed in one gulp? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like I said, I promised I'd use it. I'm working from home again. You know, I've used it every day for my cup. A cup of tea. I also can't help but notice that you're wearing the same T-shirt that you wore on that night. Am I? <laughs> yeah, you I think you might be. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I just haven't got changed since, or stopped drinking <laughs> since that night. Still got sick down it. <laughs> <laughs> so moving swiftly on. Thank you for that, Stig. I think so. Um, taking us on a journey like Marty McFly going back in time. It's Doomy. Yeah, so uh, we've had quite a good response this week. Uh, first one from uh, D- Derek P at the See It Through podcast. Uh, regarding the Xmas show, I know I'm a day late and a few drinks short, but I was nursing a, a pretty great New Holland beer barrel bourbon for my Christmas libation. That's not Abs- easy to say. Very nice. Absolutely love having this on YouTube to listen to while I'm chained to the office chair during the work week. Great job, gents. Thanks very much. Thanks indeed. Uh, next up is Monk's Boy on Discord. Uh, just finished this week's pod. It's a solid 12 out of 10. High praise Great. indeed. Absolutely. Uh, Angry Kurt says, If I were Jeebus and thought my product was going to make £52 billion, I would front the risk myself and take out the 100k. I was laughing out loud at the whole pitch. Yeah, the, the 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 money didn't make sense on Jeeva's pitch, really, did it? I don't think the money made sense on anyone's pitches, really. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, true. It was very entertaining to listen to. Well, yeah, yeah, but you know, a hundred thousand pound investment to make fifty-two billion back—that's uh, that's that's a lot. 
shall we say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sneaky at I am sneaky. Listened through it last night. Excellent Dragon's Den piece. Got me thinking, however. I wonder if any of the escapists could actually get an invention patented. Would go a long way to funding the, the show. Thanks for helping me get through COVID. Keep up the great work. Yes, bless him, Sneaky. He is, uh, he is full of the COVID at the minute. Ah, get well. Get well soon. I, I wonder, could we put our brilliant minds together uh, and come up with our own invention? We'll have to give it some thought. I think that, that, that's where it falls over at the post, isn't it? <laughs> I'll, I'll, have, I'll, cut my, I'll, I'll have my sweet cut of £52 billion, pounds, though, if, uh, if that's on the table. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. yeah, I'll front a bit of money for that. Nice little return, that. Yeah, I've got a teller in my wallet, I think. Next up, we've got Dan at Tree Smurf. Absolutely love this concept. Definitely think it might be worth revisiting at one point. Hashtag hollow days. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of it like, oh, it's a virtuality thing. You can go on the holiday and we, we can bring the holiday to you in your home. And and then it's like, okay, all right, how is it going to pitch this? And it was just like, but it's it's a bit shit. It's just a picture. It's just this. It's just that. It's like it's just looking at Google Earth images then on a, on a VR headset, isn't it? <laughs> I think it ended with the Jeeba saying, I'm just squinting with one eye at a camera on my phone or something, a picture on his phone, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm entirely 100% convinced that Oodles only put that pitch together probably at the last minute just so he could say holo days <laughs> yeah. over and over again. <laughs> he, had, he, had, he had the name before the idea. It's like, right, what, what idea yeah. can I come up with now? Ter- terrestrial Extra at Terrestrial Extra. Cracking pod leads. It's a shame there was only one censored suggestion from the listeners, but you were right. It was probably d- due to the time of the year. Personally, when I saw the request for ideas, I was post-stigged. There's an idea. Instant hangover cure. By the way, flowers for Algernon. Finished, and I also bought it for my mum for Xmas. We both loved it. Thumbs up. Great. I could have done with an instant hangover cure. <laughs> Definitely. More whiskey. I mean, you could you, you, you could you could have done with a one-day hangover cure by the sounds oh, of it. Oh, God, it was bad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Christopher Love, dead, dead Pete. Punk has emailed us. Hello, Motown excavationists. I was too slow to type it up last week, but I had a business idea to present to, to the board of ME Dragons. January is a busy month for the Punk household. We have eight birthdays to arrange, far too soon after the winter solstice period, so people who were heard to make purchases for over the holidays are doubly heard to buy for now. This was especially difficult before internet times when the shops would be cleared due to New Year's sales. Remember those? So I have been in the same predicament as many of you on a gift-giving occasion. What do you get the person that has everything? Well, no matter what you may possess, there is always some cunt needing to get slapped in the face. Deadbeat Punk Industries have a network of highly trained pugilists that guarantee to deliver the perfect slap to the person you dislike the most. We provide you with video, photos, GIFs, duh, and a flak file of the actual slap, which you can use as a message tone. Slaps come with full warranty on speed impact, hand imprint, and of course, sound. We take pride in the service we deliver, and if you're not completely satisfied, you'll get a slap thrown in for free too. There is a pricing scheme reflective of the prick getting the phase five, 
The racist neighbours are ourselves buying scratch cards for 20 minutes, explaining why they're buying each one and when they have won with that card previously, before scratching them all at the till. They're tier 1 targets. Bosses and management are tier 2. There is usually travel and security details to work around. Slightly more difficult than your common piss stain. <laughs> now tier 3 is a premium service and works similar to Kickstarter. Normally a lot of people pay as a group for one target. Our first tier 3 subject was funded for a complete 304% last year, far surpassing our expectations. So hopefully soon we will be providing footage of Jamie Oliver getting whiplash from a perfectly executed jaw relocator. <laughs> the funds generally go toward our staff members as sadly there may be a bit of prison time involved in the job <laughs> although we have a great legal team that are also trained in violence to avoid this as much as possible we wish to expand our operations we have Ireland pretty well covered but are aware of how many people in America need slapped seems to be a gold mine waiting to happen so we are looking for funds to begin international services. As well as offering stock options, you will receive up to 10 free slaps to distribute throughout the year. Best of all, as a shareholder, you will be exempt from any future slaps, often not available to Woodles. <laughs> Thanks for your time, Deadbeat Punk, director of Love Shack Slaps. Brilliant. I mean, I'm in yep. straight away. I mean, this is a great business. I think that's the £52 billion idea. Yep. You think? Oh yeah, <laughs> the thought that I went into that. Brilliant. Yeah, I love how much effort Debbie Punk puts into his emails. It's so good. Yeah, thank you so much for that, Demi. Um, and a lovely bit of feedback from uh, a lot of people. So yeah, really appreciated. So um, I guess it's uh, time to have a look at what our cast's previous work has been in the Nexus. So um, I'll go to you first, Dick. Oh, me first. Uh, firstly, obviously we've had a bit of a break, um, a couple of recommendations I want to throw out there. If you haven't been watching the Mandalorian, I watched the whole of season two over Christmas, much enjoyed it like, a lot more than the first season. Um, but yeah, was, I thought season two was brilliant. Really enjoyed it. It absolutely looks absolutely stunning as well. Um, it's probably it like the, the best TV show I've ever seen, like in terms of how it looks. Uh, also a film called Wolf Walkers, which is on Apple TV. Um, it's by a Cartoon Saloon who did uh, Song of the Sea and Secret of Kells. It's a, it's just a really good film, really brilliant film, really stunning. My kids watched it again today, um, so they've watched it a couple of times now. But uh, yeah, they're both two things that I would recommend heartily. But the main thing that I have been doing is I have watched um, Attack on Titan. So oh, yeah. yeah, this is a um, manga anime. It's an adaptation from a manga graphic novel of the same name. It was released in 2013 and it's season one's on Netflix, but the rest of it you have to get on Crunchyroll and they're currently on season four at the moment. I started this on the 30th of December and by the 4th of January, I'd watched all 25 episodes of season one and all 12 episodes of season two. Like I smash through this like at Oodle's pace, because um, it's just <laughs> it just keeps wanting like giving you more and more. Every episode ends with something where you're just like, oh, now I need to see the next episode. Uh, so if you don't know what it is, it's basically um, 
it's set in a world where the last surviving members of humanity live inside these cities um, surrounded by huge enormous walls they have this outside wall and then inside that is a lot of like smaller communities like farmland and woodland and small villages and then the further you get in there's another wall which inside that's a town and then you get to the center there's a central wall and inside that's like you know where the king lives and it's like a citadel kind of thing so but th- this thing is huge it's not like a a few miles wide like the, the, the thing covers like such a vast area and these walls are there to keep out what's known as titans these are huge gigantic money in humanoids that range from like six meters to 20 meters tall um the story follows uh, a young man called Eren jaeger who after watching a titan destroy his hometown and witnessing the death of his mother vows to kill every titan you know, the typical revenge. He vows to kill every Titan that he comes across. And with that, him and his two friends, uh, Mikasa and Armin, vow to join the scouts, group of elite fighters whose job is to protect humanity and kill Titans. Uh, the Titans are horrific. They are really horrible, look, weird looking. So they look, they kind of have a human form, but they just all out of proportion. So some of them will have like really long bodies with like tiny heads and then others will have like these really squat bodies with massive heads and massive eyes and huge mouths and they just look they're all really weirdly out of proportion and that like I said they're really horrible to look at they've got this dead stare that they just they just pick up and kill humans and the way they do that is it's it's really it's such a brutal show uh but yeah that I just I got so drawn into it I I'd watch One Punch Man. I was like, oh, do you know what? I'm going to, I really enjoyed that. I'm going to watch a few more of the animes that I've got on my watch list. So I thought I'll watch Attack on Titan. And yeah, like I said, I was up till like two o'clock in the morning on a couple of nights because I'd be watching it. And then the episode would end with a cliffhanger. And I'd be like, oh, I should go to bed. <laughs> that was such an amazing cliffhanger. I need to watch the next episode. <laughs> like, and I just kept doing it. And there was, there was points where I was like, right, I have to go to bed now. And there's, uh, the, the first season's kind of told in these little small chunks of stories. So there's like one that's like three parts. And then it moves on to like this next bit of the story, which is seven parts. So I, I kept watching to like, right, it's the end of the story now. That's not a cliffhanger episode. Go to bed. But, uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's really great. They've got some brilliant characters in it. Um, Mikasa is an amazing uh, female character. She's proper badass, like, takes zero shit from anyone, takes down Titans with, like, such ease. And his other friend, Armin's more of a strategist. Um, strategist? So between the three of them, you've got one who's strategist. That is the word I was looking for. Um, <laughs> between the three of them you've got one who's like amazing at taking titans down one who's literally fueled by rage and revenge and the other one who you know can think up good plans and ideas to to take take them down and then the rest of the characters as well like they don't they don't take a back seat so these are your three main characters but the variety of characters outside the main three get focused on a lot as well so even though it's like centered around them it never treats other characters as like secondary so you have a lot of storylines to get to know them as well. But because it's such a brutal show, it's one where you don't get attached to anyone because these Titans will literally snatch people out of the air like that. So you approach it, applying Game of Thrones logic to this, like don't, don't yeah. get too invested in one particular yeah, no character. Or, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, no one's safe. No one's the hero, so to say. Yeah, like the scouts are awesome. Like they're, they're equipped with these like fighting gears called. It's, it's an omnidirectional mobility gear, so it's ODM for short, and that allows them to like fight in three D spaces. So it's like a harness that has these wires on that fling out, grab onto walls, and they can kind of zoom along on these zip lines and fling themselves up and around the titans. Because the only way to kill a titan is to chop out the nape of the neck. Like it, otherwise, anything else that you do just regrows. So even if they chop the head off, the head comes back. You've got to hit it in the right point of the neck. Uh, so the the ability of the scouts, they have to be able to like fight in the air, basically. So they're flying around on these things. It, but it's just like the way that the action's done with that is really cool. The animation's really good. Um, and now on, I'm now on to season three of it, and you can tell like the budget's kind of shot up a lot in season three like it looks a lot crisper and cleaner especially during the odm sequences and the and the action sequences how many seasons are there it's currently on season four um season four is now streaming uh weekly on crunchyroll but i'm gonna wait till it's all out because yeah the thought of watching them they're only 20 minutes long so the thought of watching one and then the ending in a cliffhanger and having to wait another week it's like nah i'm gonna i'm six episodes into season three so I'm going to wait until season four is all out and then finish that off. Are you tempted to play the game? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to look at the game. Apparently, I should just play the second one because it kind of covers the first two seasons anyway. And you can create your own characters and stuff in it. So I might have a look at playing the second one when, I, when I've got a chance. Uh, but yeah, it's it's very anime. Like, you know, there's a lot of inner, inner monologues, shouting, over overacting. Rallying speeches, lines. Yeah, rallying speeches, emotional music cues, but it all works. It's all really good. Like if you really enjoy anime stuff and especially action and horror types, then this is really good. Like I'm, su- I'm surprised there's only four seasons of it. Like uh, something that I've been aware of. Like I don't, I don't really watch anime or into manga or anything like that, but I'm very aware of Attack on Titan. And I kind of like seen this for how long it's been in pop culture. Like I thought it was like something like One Piece where there's 14 billion episodes of it or something like that. Like I thought it was a really long running thing. I'm really shocked that there's only four seasons of it. I think it's quite close to the graphic novels. Um, as far as I'm aware, like they started in 2009. The show the first season was 2013, then there wasn't another series till 2017. So I don't right. know if it like took off as well as they hoped. Cuz then the next season's only 12 episodes long. And then yeah. the next season's twenty five again, so I, I think that's maybe just they're just doing what the books are because I think they're finished now. But yeah, it's really good. Like it's not it's not just like action horror. There's there's loads of other stuff going on in it. It's like you know all this like uh, sub subterfuge political grandstanding. There's family secrets, up, uprisings, and all all. There's just loads of different things like thrown into the mix. There is things that happen that are so left field that you'll just be like, what the fuck has just happened there? Like it just <laughs> it just comes out of nowhere. But it's great. Like there's was one there's a few moments in season one you just like I let I finish the episode and I was just like, what the fuck? I'll just like no, that doesn't make sense. What? And it's like I have to watch the next episode now to know why that why that's just happened. But yeah, it's one of those shows that just wants you leaves you wanting more every time you watch an episode. So It sounds like it's got an end as well. Yes. That's a good thing. Four seasons with an ending. So, oh, like, cool. how much is like Crunchyroll? Uh, it's free. Uh, Crunchyroll's free with an ad based system, so you can watch it on that. But there's adverts. So, all right, didn't know that. 
Thanks for that, Stig. Uh, so, uh, Gadget, moving on to you, sir. Uh, so, a couple of things. Uh, first, you briefly want to talk about a game I've been playing, which isn't Cyberpunk. Um, it's called Horus. Ah, great. Which a lot of people were talking about over Christmas because it was on sale on the Switch for a quid. It's the best quid I've spent in a long time. Uh, Horus is a 2D platformer uh, for the Switch. I think it's on the PC as well. Uh, made by one bloke. Um, it's set in early 80s, mid-80s, something like that. You play as Horus, who is a robot who has been made by a very rich man. A mad professor kind of guy, but he's referred to as the old man. Um, and you, he is telling you the story of his life. Um you go th- you from being turned like being switched on to like being tested and being asked to do various menial tasks and that kind of thing and then there is the plot moment which i won't spoil and then everything gets a lot darker and it's a fucking brilliant game it's basically it's a 2d platformer um which at first felt very much like a mario platformer cuz uh, horus has got some great momentum behind them. Uh, you have to spend a lot of time like controlling very precise jumps to get over things. Um, it also applies kind of that Celeste way of uh, working where you die quite frequently, but it's, you've got infinite lives and it's a very quick respawn back to the beginning of the room. But so you get so far into it and then you get um, these gravity boots that which let you walk up walls. Um, and that presents some very strange things because not only can it walk you up walls, but it actually shifts the world's gravity. So Horus is always in the right direction. So if you walk up a wall and jump off it, you will fall down relative to where you jumped from. Does that make sense? Not fall down to the absolute gravity, but to the gravity of where Horus would fall Mm. based on his orientation. And it takes you a little while to wrap your head around that. But it's fucking brilliant. It's absolutely mad. So all the story is delivered from Horus's perspective. It's like he's telling you the story of his life. So... Uh, his voice is done with a text text to speech thing, uh, so it's all uh, so it's all digitized. But that means also the dialogue from the other characters digitized because Horace is saying the old man said this to me, and we'll recite the lines. Um, but Horace is really innocent because he's a brand new robot and he doesn't know sarcasm or kind of brutality or anything like that. Um, but the people around him are re- like some of them are really fucking awful, and you have to deal with some very strange scenes or it's like strange bits of dialogue. Um, really kind of concerning bits of dialogue because I, I don't want to spoil this i don't really want to like get into the details of it but like so a character will say something really heinous or really awful and then horace will will recite the back he says but i didn't really know what that meant and stuff like that and it's really funny and engaging there are some really interesting kind of mini games and side quests in it um and I, it's worth picking up it's not very expensive on the eShop right now um, in general, because it's an indie game. But it's made by one, one person. It's very British. There's a lot of kind of early 1980s references in it. Um, lots of Ford Capris lying around for some reason. Um, it's very much worth looking into. So if you've got a Switch, you've got a PC, get on Horus. It's really, really good. But the main thing I want to talk about this week is um, something that's brilliant, something that puts a bit of joy into this world. Uh, and it's awesome games done quick. Now, I talked about summer games done quick, early on in the podcast, I believe. But Awesome Games Done Quick is the winter version. Uh, if you don't know what Games Done Quick is, it's a week of speedrunning. Um, speedrunning game, through games for charity. Um, the one they do in the winter, the Awesome Games Done Quick one, is for the Prevent Cancer Foundation. And it's a 24-7 stream, lasting over seven days, of just constant speedruns, of uh, people just trying to beat video games as fast as they can. And 
it's a wonderful showcase for this kind of niche area of video game enthusiasm. And it raises a lot of, of money for uh, awesome charities. So f- some stats on this one this week. They raised, because it finished today as of recording, so it finishes on the Sunday. The donation total was $2,763,572. Wow. Nice. Raised in a week. Nice. The largest donation they received, which I, I like that they put the stats out, because their average donation is about $25 across all the people who donate. The largest donation they received was $187,000. One person donated <laughs> one, that. One wow. single donation. One single Jeez. donation. Well, I, well, I probably assume it's like probably a corporate donation or something like that. But yeah, that's a, a strange amount, ridiculous though, donation. It's a bit of a weird specific amount. Well, no, it'll, it'll be converted from whatever it was. Mm. So it'll be like £200,000 or something. Or to, what, you know, um, whatever. what game was being speedrun when that got donated? Do you know? I don't know. I'm just looking at the stats on the page. I would love to find out because I'm assuming they probably would have had to stop what they were doing. Yeah, I'd imagine uh, so. I think it was me doing uh, Dark Souls, I think you'll find. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah. Paying the... you to stop. <laughs> <laughs> It's too slow, Biggie. You've spent two hours on one boss. <laughs> People can beat this game in 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's something that I've followed for quite a long time. I, I kind of always buy the T-shirt and I always kind of give them a bit of hype on Twitter and stuff like that. It's a really, really wonderful thing. And even with COVID going on, like they, normally they, they kind of take over a hotel somewhere for the week and they've got like a huge... like um in-person crowd and um, everyone's kind of together and it's this wonderful kind of collection of gamers getting together. Um, obviously, you can't do that with COVID, so they've they migrated it to be online and it runs pretty seamlessly. Like, I was watching it for on and off for most of this, this past week. There's only a couple of times where anyone had any, like, lag issues or they couldn't hear the announcers or the commentators. Um so it really, really well done on them, on the technology and on the kind of still they managed to maintain the presentation and the high production values, even when people haven't used, you know, their own webcams and their own microphones rather than having like a pro camera crew set up. But obviously, as I'm talking about it now, as, as, as the audience, is, as the listeners will be listening to this, it's finished. But if you go onto the Games Done Quick YouTube channel, they basically archive all 157 runs from the week and they're all up there to watch. And I want to give you a couple of highlights. Um, first one is Punchy's run of Silent Hill 3 because I love Silent Hill 3 it's a wonderful game, terrifying in places but what you don't realise is that game is held together with sticky tape and chewing gum Like that game is so broken and Punchy's run on the PC version of it, he basically, there are points he manages to skip the entire of the shopping mall sequence by walking out of bounds <laughs> and he just walks out and walks out the exit of the level Um and stuff like that, or like clipping through enemies or kind of abusing um, invincibility frames to a, to the ridiculous degree. It's a really, really funny run to watch because he just keeps popping in and out of the world. Someone did, uh, and I can't, for the life of me, I can't remember the names of, of all the people who do them because it's all screen names. It's worse than us. Um, <laughs> the run of Hades, which was a, a kind of a donation incentive. Someone beat through Hades in an hour, which, wow. I mean, that was most of everybody's game of the year last year. And just watching someone power through um it's a specific challenge run they were doing so they basically unlocked all of the weapons and all of the aspects and it was like a three weapon run so it was basically completing the uh doing complete runs three times so for context how long does hades normally sort of approximately take you know an average so so an average run of hades like for me getting to i mean i still haven't actually escaped on hades but basically getting to the last boss 
I've never done it in under 45 minutes. So they managed to do three runs in just over that time, which is impressive by anybody's measure. But the just best one, the, the one that absolutely everybody must watch, and I put this in our Discord because it's incredible. Um, a lad did a blindfolded speed run of Super Mario 64. So not only is he speed running it, he beats the game in 40 minutes. But he's doing it with a blindfold on and relying on audio cues and very precise movements and precise controller inputs. Like watching that, it's astonishing to see that he manages to get even into fucking Peach's castle at the start of the game without being able to see what's on screen. It's honestly That's some it's Jedi mind-, mind shit right there. That is. It, it is. It's like how many thousands of runs has he done to perfect that? That's honestly, it's unbelievable watching it. Um, so I would even if you don't like get into speed running or get into games done quick seriously look for awesome games done quick 2021 Super Mario 64 on YouTube because honestly it's astoundingly good and one of the strangest and best things I've ever watched I can't figure out how someone would do that just no 2D games I can get it you could run across right it takes me X amount of seconds to get to that point and then I jump and then this point like you could time it but like if you if you're out by a, a tiny fraction in a 3D game, you jump in the wrong way. Exactly. In fact, the in fact the best part of that run is, is there was two times where he got himself turned around and he got a bit lost, and without taking his blindfold off, managed to find his way back to where he was supposed to be. Wow. That's crazy. Which I think is even more impressive. Yeah. Like his knowledge, his knowledge of the layout of each level, and his knowledge of the audio cues, and because as, as well, I mean, the game's got stereo audio because. You know the N sixty four had stereo audio, but it's not that good. It's not surround sound. Like you, how you only have your left and right direction to work out where you are in the in your headphones. So, which is, it's just so damn impressive. I mean, I've had someone beat me at Street Fighter two, I think it was, with using Zangief behind their back, um, yeah. and that was embarrassing to lose to that. And he was doing all the power bomb <laughs> moves and stuff like that. I mean, so I, I haven't really lived that down. But I mean. The, the whole concept of this is just alien to me to to invest that amount of time into games to understand how they work that way. Just, yeah, uh, incredible stuff. I, I, I tend to watch the, uh, like, Mario, sort of 2D, Mar- Mario World, Mario 3 yeah. speedruns that they do, or, or the, like, ROM hacks that they that they run in them. Yeah. Um, they're short, and it's just good how they manipulate things. Like, they, they sort of clip through walls and... Yeah, I, I, they manipulate the items in the game to sort of give them a little boost, or you know, skip skip several levels and things like that. It's just really interesting. Yeah, it's it's, it's amazing to see stuff like that. Like the ones I prefer tend to be like the glitchless runs because, like, abusing glitches is a skill in itself and kind of breaking a game in a way that suits you. But I like the ones where it's like pure skill. Like, um, I love uh, any speed run of Celeste. Oh god, they're so good because it's just pure motion. Like, it's someone who understands completely won the layout of each level. And that's a hard game, even if you know the layout of the level. It's so unforgiving. But, like, being able to platform that smooth, that smoothly and that effortlessly is just great. But um, I, I keep telling myself I want to learn to speedrun. I want to, but the problem is I can never find a game that I want to put that much time into. The closest I've ever come to is uh, Dark Souls. And I can get to basically past where Biggie is in his tr- streaming series in under 30 minutes. Yeah, thanks for reminding that's the me. best I can do. But that's um, well, that's that's no reflection on you. But it's more that I've played the game that many times, and I kind of you memorize 
where things go. It's like it's like learning a hard song on Beat Saber or Guitar Hero or something like that. It's just getting that muscle memory in. It's like games like that, you know exactly where all the enemies are going to be, so you can kind of run around them and you know how to beat the bosses quickly. You know what items to use and that kind of so, thing when you played it enough. So laid back as well. Like I watched um, Mitch Flowerpo, he's a Mario speedrunner. Oh yeah, I've he, seen him, yeah. Did a rom he he ran a rom hack uh, last night, Super Orb Brothers. It was called this rom hack, a Mario Three rom hack, and he got the world record in it. And it's just so laid back at when he's playing it, just chatting with the the um, co commentators and things like yeah. that. And it's just I, I'd be like glued to the front of my TV, <laughs> not moving, like an inch away from my screen. And it's just just like them. It's like it's nothing. Oh yeah, that, that, that's one other thing I'll, I'll I'll end off with on it as well. Um, there was another one worth looking up is the the Sonic One Run, which was um, of all things played on Android. I didn't even know there was an Android version of it, but anyway, um, Flying Fox she accidentally got a world record in it, <laughs> and she 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 wasn't expected to be on world record pace or anything like that, um, and she'd buggered up a couple of bits as well, so she was just kind of goofing around. But she must have played a few sections so perfectly that she scored a world record at the end of it. And her reaction is priceless because she genuinely wasn't, she didn't think she was on world record pace. So she wasn't expecting it. And it's just this quite wonderful little moment. And again, that's on, if you if you search for the Sonic 1 run from this year on their YouTube channel, it's um, it's there and it's well worth watching. But So can you uh, speed run Final Fantasy 7? I'm asking for a friend. You you can actually, <laughs> yeah. You uh, can. Some, some, can someone you? did it on Summer Games Done Quick, I think, a couple of years ago. They did it in nine hours, I think. Um, wow! And in fact, I am just going to actually look up the record for it. Record. Fantasy there aren't many seven. games you can't speed run. To be fair, it, it yeah. seems like there's every, every game's been done at, or attempted at some point. Okay, so the world record in Final Fantasy VII is held by Zeal who is American. He did it on the PS2. And he did it in six hours, 59 minutes, and nine seconds. Holy Fuck shit. off. <laughs> is that game like 100-odd hours long? Yeah. Uh, That's not a disc one yet. Yeah, you just, put, you, just put, you just went straight to disc four. Just inserted it. Load previous Ooh. save. Yeah, yeah so, so that's the any percent world record. Wow. Um, the all bosses world record, so that's hitting everything, including the ultimate weapons mm. and stuff like that, is uh, the world records held by Anjeb174, and that is nine hours, eight minutes, and 42 seconds. So that's doing more than you need to to finish the game um, and still managing it in just over nine hours. So, uh, yeah, quite insane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, awesome games done quick. Check it out. It's so, so good. Thank you so much for that. So, uh, Dumi, over to you. Well, I've been. Um, what I've been up to is pretty much things that have already been talked about either this week or last week. So, I've finished Cobra Kai season three. I think Oodles talked about that last week. Mm-hmm. Ah, you did. I. Yeah, that that that's brilliant. I love that show. It's so good. It's so cheesy, but it's so good. Um, and like just having the original cast. I know. I I don't know why that blows me away, but because it's not like they were they were doing anything else, is it? To be fair. <laughs> Surprised Rick Moranis wasn't in it. It's just, uh, Jesus. Hey, you never know. Um, no spoilers. <laughs> but um, oh, there's a thing in it though that it always just like makes me laugh. Do you know when like in in like sort of TV series when they're sort of acting on like 
playing a football game, or soccer in this case. And it, it's so obvious that none of the actors have ever played soccer. <laughs> and then when it's being played out on the pitch, it's just like, it's just the funniest thing you'll ever see. It's just, oh, it just... I don't think uh, any, don't any film or does football properly ever, do they? Like, It'd be like us not, doing no. American football or something, isn't it? It'd just be like, we wouldn't know what we were doing. Oh, it's just, I don't know, every, every time they do it, it's like, why do it? Mm. It just looks so lame. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just, leave, just leave it out completely. But um, yeah, so I've, been, I've, I've watched that. That's, that's excellent. Um, I've been playing a lot of Destiny with Jeebus. My relationship with that game is a lot different to his. I've still put <laughs> hundreds of hours into it, but that's probably about 1% of what he has. Um, the, the lore and the story, I have not got a clue what's going on in it. I didn't when I played it originally. I just like I just like the shooting and doing the dungeons and the raids and uh, crucible uh, PvP stuff. Uh, my my sort of experience of playing Destiny these days is Jeebus will sort of text me and say, "Oh, we've got to go and do this thing." So I'll jump on and I'll go. Right, you've got to go and get this, and then we'll go here. We'll shoot these. We'll go here. We'll get this. We'll go and get this bounty. We'll go and get this quest, and it's like, yeah, whatever, mate. Do, what, do I get a gun at the end of this? Yeah, you get a machine gun. Brilliant. <laughs> That's and then I get me my machine gun. I get me machine gun or, or my sniper rifle, and I never use it ever. <laughs> it sounds exactly like, like my experience. Yeah, but it's great. I love it. It's brilliant. It's a good um, shooter. It is. It really is. Fantastic. Um, and the, the only other thing is uh, I've been playing Horace as well, Biggie um, Gadget. Um, I paid a pound for it. I, I, it's worth the ten pounds that it, you know, full price. Yeah. Because there's so much game in that, like for the price. Um, and it's just it's so like it, when it's like it's sort of would you describe the platforming as as sort of kind of like Celeste in yeah. But not. It's like Mario meets Celeste. Yeah, kind of. Because it's, it's, it's as... got that it's got that Mario movement, but with the Celeste punishment. Yeah, and the sort of <laughs> the sort of the, the sort of maps are a bit more open, so you've got a bit bit more time to breathe in certain areas of it. I think, yeah. um, but it's still really difficult. But also, it's like there's there's a, there's a lot more sort of varied gameplay in it. Like there's a bit of Metroidvania in there, some like little driving sections and. Little, a lot of nods to other things like um, popular culture and things from the eighties and the nineties. Yeah. Um, when when you was talking about the sort of gravity boots where you can walk on the walls and the ceilings, have you? Have you? Did you ever any point sort of go upside down and then jump off? So you sort of there was nothing underneath you to land on. So you just sort of shoot up into space. Yes, I've done that before. Yeah, I was like, um, "What the hell's going on here?" And he's just like yeah, floating d- off, floating off into space. Yeah, I did, um, I, I did that. I did that by accident once and found a whole new area. That was a, that was. Fun. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Somehow didn't die in the process as well. But I'm getting like um, massive spectrum vibes from playing it. Mm, it just, yeah, it's got that. It's got that look and feel, isn't it? It has. Yeah, and it's sort of very sort of. I know a lot of games in in, in the sort of eighties on the spectrum. They were just made by one guy in the bedrooms, weren't they? Yeah. Um, it's just got that feel about it, yeah, in like in a, in, a, in a really good way, though. Do you know what I mean? I just feel I just feel like I'm playing a Spectrum game when I'm playing it. Mm, um, yeah, no, I can I can I can I can appreciate that. Uh, I, I love the humor. I love the British humor in it, and I, I had no idea what any sort of like American people must be thinking when they're playing this game. 
because like some of the jokes in it, some of the characters, like you know, yeah. people like uh, I don't know Steptoe when he pops up in it. Oh yeah, yeah, it's he's like, a, a Steptoe chip where he's got to clean up rubbish all the time. <laughs> yeah, just like little references to that. It's like I don't know, quite may go over uh, quite a lot of people's heads that um, even people like from the UK and uh, uh, from that era. But um, yeah. I, I, I love it. It's so, so good. I went I'm, to school I'm, with I'm, Steptoe. <laughs> <laughs> Which one, the senior? Yeah. Albert, yeah. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, can't, I, can't, I, I really, really uh, think it's, it's going to be up there in my like, game of the years, this one. For, for a pound as well, I didn't think it was going to be that good. Um, Ten days into January and we've got a game of the year contender. Yeah, I think I've nearly, I think I've nearly finished it. Um, I think I'm about halfway through. I'm on, the end, I'm on, but... I've just started chapter seven. Okay, yeah, I think I'm on like seventeen at the minute. Oh Christ, there's that many of it. Bloody hell! But, um, it's a long game. <laughs> it is, yeah. Like, it's surprising, really. But um, I've I've been loving it, absolutely loving it. Yeah, get it. I don't think it's a pound anymore, unfortunately. No, no, um, the sale the sale ended over New Year. So, yeah, I think somebody mentioned on Twitter or on the Discord that uh, it was given away on the Epic Game Store at some point. So it might be worth checking your library in case you picked it up and mm. forgot about it before you buy it. But yeah, that's that's what I've been up to. Oh, cheers, buddy. Thanks very much. So uh, I guess it's over to me. Um, you'll be glad to hear that I am currently still playing Final Fantasy VII. Um, I've e- actually got the furthest I have in years. And uh, I'm currently at Rocket Town, where you get to meet Sid. So that's Ooh, where I'm at yes. at the moment. So. Really um, enjoying getting into that, and I had a very, very brief discussion with this um, with Gadget earlier in the week, and uh, it's just something about that game is just charming. Um, so, if anyone's never played it before, I suggest you uh, you do check it out if you do have it or can get it because it is a really old school RPG that just Japanese RPG, I should say, um, that has its weird quirks and bits and pieces to it. But for something about it, I just find really charming, and I just it's like a comfort game for me. And I do like playing it. Um, I've also been watching The Shield. Uh, someone pointed out to me the other day that it was on Prime. I think it might have been Kurt, uh, best boy. So I went back and started watching The Shield again. Um, really good corrupt cop show, um, which came out, bloody hell, um, 90s? Like 2001, no, wasn't it? Mid-2000s. Oh, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I can't remember when it came out. It was a long time ago. It was just after 24, I think. I think it was one of the other networks wanted like a 24-like show. Mm. But it's really good. It's, it's, um, it follows uh, Mackie, who's just this... Uh, he's got a strike team as part of um, the police force. Um, and they're in... Uh, I've got to get this right now. LA? LA, yeah. So, um, yeah, it follows his strike force that he's the leader of. Um, and it turns out you find out very quickly that um, he's a bit corrupt, as well as the guys that work with him. Um, and it kind of just follows... His path, really, his journey. Um, he has um, Acevedo, who is basically like the... Um, oh, I've got the title, what they call him. Um, the boss of uh, the LAPD, um, who clearly knows... Is, some is of it like the captain? The captain, the thank captain you. Yeah. Or something like so that. he basically um, is keeping an eye on Mackie because he obviously suspects there's something else going on and starts to um, try and find ways to catch him out. And um, it, it's just brilliantly shot. Um, the, the stories are really good. Um, they're original for their, their time. Um, the acting is really spot on. Um, 
and the arcs for all the characters, even in the background, all get their go. So um, it's really good. Um, it all interwines, and you just can't believe that um, this guy seems to get away with what he does. Um, and um, oh my god, I've forgotten his name. The the lead actor, he is just Michael Chiklis. Thank you, Michael Chiklis. He is just spot on. I mean, sometimes you know when somebody fits a role, like Kiefer Sutherland. Funny enough, when you mentioned Twenty Four. Michael obviously got offered this role and it just suits him to a T. He just made that his own. Um, he's so good in that. So if anyone hasn't seen it, do you uh, have a it look at that? It's a really well cast show all right, though, like it you is. said. It's, yeah. It brings in, like, you get uh, Glenn Close is in one series, yeah. um, Forest Wickers in one, CCH Pounders in the whole show, but she's mm-hmm. absolutely amazing in it. She's amazing. Uh, but yeah, it's, just, it's such a good show. And the way it's shot as well, it's it's really... Shaky it's really camera shaky and... camera and gritty. Like it makes it feel like you're there. Like that's the whole point. It makes you feel like you're kind of on the streets rather than it being some like kind of glamorous, like, well, you know, perfectly shot thing. It's really like down to earth and gritty. It's, yeah. and I mean, it's brutal. Like you say, it's gritty. There's humor. Yeah. There's just a mixture of everything. And it's, you know, really balanced. It's really well done. And uh, some touching moments and, you know, look, look at family behind the scenes as well. You know, so yeah. Yeah, really recommend that. Uh, the, only, the only thing I wanted to finish on, which was a bit of an oddity, because I only discovered this the other day, was, um, I hate to bring it up, but it's Call of Duty, but it's the new Call of Duty. It's uh, Cold War uh, Black Ops, which uh, was released for the PS4 and the PS5. Now, originally, I wasn't particularly interested in getting this, but um, my, the friend that I share uh, the account with, uh, shout out to uh, Jdred. He uh, ended up getting talked into uh, picking this up, so we obviously we both can play it. And uh, we had a little crack at this over Christmas, and it's Call of Duty, it's shooty-shooty, bang-bang. It's not doing anything particularly different. I hear the campaign is uh, very good, so I'm looking forward to actually playing that. But the multiplayer side for what we play it for um, is kind of very similar. But there's this mode which I've never seen before now I hear rumours that this has been in previous uh, Black Ops so I can't confirm that but there's this mode and it's called Prop Hunt oh yeah that's been in for a while that's been in since like Black Ops 2 I think I have never seen this before and oh my god did I have fun so just for those that aren't aware of this um, it's one team basically as the game loads in you turn into props relevant to the map that's uh, been selected so um, one that we played in a, a map called Nuketown has all this sort of Christmassy decorations around it so you can come in as a Christmas tree as a present as a wreath as a small gingerbread um, model and you have 30 seconds to find a suitable hiding spot on the map before the other side get a chance to hunt for you. Now, the other side are armed to the teeth with uh, the usual guns and grenades, whatever, and they have to find you. So the thing is, you get to hide as a prop and select anywhere on the map. So you can even go to where they are spawning in, but they won't see you doing that. So you can sort of sit there behind them and then they'll suddenly appear in the map and they won't know you're there. And you basically get uh, two chances to change into a different prop. So if you don't like the one that you uh, spawn in the game, you can change it, but only up to do another two times. And you can also drop um, a decoy of the prop that you are. So if you're a Christmas tree, you can drop a decoy of it, run around somewhere else on the map, and then go and stand as that Christmas tree. So they think, oh, that could be you. Shoot it, and it turns out a decoy, so they don't know where you are. Um, but if you do find a really good hiding spot, The thing that goes against you is that your prop whistles after about 30 seconds, just the once. So it gives the opposition a chance to find you. 
And that is basically it. It sounds mad, which it is. It sounds a lot of fun, which I promise you it is. I put a video in the Discord the other day. And uh, when you die, you can um, have a look at uh, the camera of one of the other players on your team. So uh, one of my friends was sitting in what I can only describe as more like a caravan. And he was hiding there as a Christmas box. And the enemy were running around trying to find him, couldn't find him. And then last minute, somebody took a shot at him. And you can go on the move. So he leapt out of this van as a Christmas box. And we're going, hide, hide, hide. So then ran up into a house. They're chasing him up into the house. And we said, oh... have you changed yet? And he's like, no. And I said, quick, change, change. So he jumps out the window and lands in front of everybody as a Christmas tree. He's gone from a present to a Christmas tree. They all spot him. Everyone's trying to shoot him. He's running around the map. It was just, it was hilarious. And I put the video and then I'll put it um, in the Discord for everyone to see at some point. But it's just a mad, silly, silly game. But we have played that far too much with far too much alcohol. And uh, it has been a lot of fun. But yeah, I didn't realize they'd done it before. But, uh, yeah, really recommend that. So, uh, yeah. Any of you guys played it before? No, I haven't. Not, not no, the Call of Duty version. I've played... Um, so, Prop Hunt originally came from Gary's Mod, which was like a suite of mods for Half-Life. And that's kind of someone put that concept together because there was just thousands upon thousands upon thousands of assets you could drop into the game. Ugh. And, it, um, yeah, it spawned from there. The, 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 it was quite like... In the early days of YouTube, it was like a huge YouTube thing to play Gary's Mod and to play Prop Hunt. And uh, yeah, it became a thing in Call of Duty after that. So it's got a long storied history of online chaos, that concept. Yeah, yeah uh, But it's, it is a fun mood to play, no matter what game you play it in, if it's there. Yeah. No, really enjoyed it. Um, so yeah, that's it, um, I think, for the Nexus. So thank you for that. Um, so it's time to get ready for the cameras to roll with our main feature. And uh, this week, um, I gave a bit of thought to uh, what the subject would be, and I've chosen favourite directors. So um, we sent a tweet out to find out um, what some of our listeners thought. But I'm going to go over to the guys here to see um, who they think are their favourite directors. Um, Gadget, you're up first, mate. Oh, my first. Marvellous. Well, okay. so for my favourite director, I'm going to pick a director who has a very storied history. He um, worked for a long time in advertising and is, was responsible for a few very iconic British adverts before he got into the cinema game. He's also a local boy, born in the Northeast. I am, to, of course, talking about Sir Ridley Scott, the man himself. <laughs> Absolute legend. But the, So I love a lot of Ridley Scott's films, but one of the reasons I also want to bring him up as well is I hate a lot of Ridley Scott's films. The man <laughs> is one of the most inconsistent directors in the world because he yes. has some absolute classics in his filmography and he has some fucking dross obviously everyone knows the big ones you know Alien was him Blade Runner oh that was him definitely and Gladiator from the year 2000 oh such such good films amongst obviously a lot of others but I've always kind of really connected with Ridley Scott's films especially kind of his earlier stuff and a lot of the sci-fi stuff that he's done because I like his world building he has this very innate visual style I don't even want to call it a visual style because it can sometimes be hard to pick out a Ridley Scott film. He's got a wonderful attention to detail. Like, even in his bad films, the worlds that he puts together are really believable, especially when they're kind of fantastical. Like, the way he built up Alien, like, you don't see the Alien for like the first, what, 40 minutes of the film? Something like that? Like, you have this three act structure in the film where you've got the Nostromo landing on, the, on LV 427, and that whole sequence 
barely any dialogue. It's all kind of building up the tension. And you get John Hurt meeting the egg, and that sets off the second act. And you get the kind of the chaos that comes around from that, but nothing really still happening apart from kind of him bursting. Um, and then you get the kind of the last act of the film, which is when the alien is act- actively hunting them. And each bit is this wonderful kind of cycle of silence and sound, silence and sound, silence and sound and tension. There's not a great deal of dialogue in the entire film. And it builds and it builds and it builds. And you get that scene in the escape pod at the end where the alien finally, you finally see the whole of the alien. And it's on screen for, what, five seconds before it gets sucked out into space. You know, it's just brilliant how that film's put yeah. together. And it's obviously, it's, I know it was kind of, it, it was one of his, it was his second ever film, second feature film, because The Duelist was his first one. Um, but it wasn't a huge budget film. But everything looked real. Everything looked tactile. Everything had a purpose in the world. And the story that he was allowed to tell was just absolutely fucking brilliant. The production design was excellent. Um, the same kind of goes into Blade Runner, which was obviously the kind of which was his next film, but it was also kind of possibly one of the hardest ones he's had because he never actually got his proper final edit until was it twenty fifteen? <laughs> was that the, was that when the final edit came out? I'm not even sure. I've lost track of how many different edits that movie has had, and I think I've seen them all. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. Because I know if you buy the current Blu-ray version, you can watch every single edit. Yeah, and like. That film was kind of done dirty in its original format because, like, the studio kind of took it over. They put that awful, awful Harrison Ford narration over the top, which kind of explained away the mystery out of the plot. Um, but the world, like, the darkness is kind of t- taking... I know the original book, I know Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, has a lot of visual in it. But I always feel that he took a lot of the visual from, like, William Gibson's novels. Like that kind of dirty, kind of rain-soaked neon city, the kind of the, the kind of amalgamation between um, kind of Western and Eastern cultures that kind of get smashed together in LA. Um, that all feels very much like Neuromancer, as opposed to Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. Um, but the film has this. Just, again, it's a beautiful look. It's when you see the actual final cut, when you see Ridley's preferred vision of it, it has the pace that it lacked in the original uh, ver- yeah. versions of the film. Um, and of course, absolute masterstroke getting Vangelis in for the soundtrack. I'm sorry, but that was just oh. absolutely per- perfect. I mean, I can't. I know there's a lot of different composers that we have today, but I can't imagine that working with anybody else. Do you know what I mean? I just no. think it just it just works. Yeah, well, as, yeah, as well as Catholic, wasn't it one of the first entirely synthetic soundtracks as well? It was like one of the very first yeah, ones to be right. done entirely with synths rather than an orchestra. And I mean, Dream, I, Dream I would go into stuff like that. Sorry. Yeah, I, yeah, I suppose, yeah. yeah I was just thinking, <laughs> then when you think about synths and stuff, like, I know that they've done a lot of uh, synth work, especially in the 80s and stuff. But Yeah. But, like, I mean, I, I could go into the other films. I like, I could, you know, go more into like, uh, Gladiator, which I think is just one of the most perfect films ever made. Like, it, yeah, I'm a big even, fan of Even 21 years after the film came out, I still get a tear in my eye at the end. Like, it's that good a film. Yeah. Um, and The Martian, I loved The Martian. One of one of my favorite yeah, sci-fi films. Yeah. A lot of people didn't like that. I don't. I don't know the book, but I loved it. Yeah. The, um, the only thing I didn't like about the Martian, because it's one of the few films that actually read the book first before I saw the film. Um, I don't like the, the they changed the ending of it slightly to make it a bit more actiony and to like they swap around a few characters. Whereas in the book, it's more sciency. It's <laughs> for lack of a better word, it's like it, it it's more like how a real would actually do that. It, 
<laughs> I'm going to make it a real word. Um, we do have to like approach the bad ones. Mm. Like, I'm sorry, but Exodus Gods and Kings was oh, dreadful. Never bothered. Oh, God, it was so bad. It's one of those films that you need to... You don't even need to be drunk to watch it. You just shouldn't watch it. It's just so... Like, I, I think... I don't think Ridley Scott can... Is that good with fantasy? I think he suits better with kind of, like, modern-day drama or science fiction. Because like, I know a lot of people like Kingdom of Heaven as well, but I really dislike that film. Is, I really didn't isn't like that, that one another one there with... Studio interference. He's he's finally got he's oh, true, finally yeah. got his own cutout. And apparently, even though it is longer, I think it adds like an extra hour onto the film or something. Apparently, it makes everything so much better and more cohesive. Right, I haven't seen that version. Yeah. I've only, I saw it at the cinema when it first came yeah, out. Yeah, me too. I so I need to thoroughly disappointed. You had Robin Hood, the one with uh, Russell Crowe in it, which was not something anyone should watch. That was bloody awful but the kind of the main bad ones that kind of like pull his career tra- trajectory down for me despite how much i love ridley scott films was prometheus and alien yes. covenant yes because prometheus had a really good concept and a lot of very good execution but they did it wrong like it was the wrong story to kind of link into the alien universe there is so much you it would be very easy to do a good alien prequel and he kind of got the chance to do it again with alien covenant and he still fucked it up it was still such a bad <laughs> film. <laughs> I was so, so angry when I saw Alien Covenant because he tried to re... With Alien Covenant, it felt like he tried to remake Alien and tried to do what made Alien brilliant. But he didn't do any of it because there was, it had no attention. None of the characters were sympathetic. Everyone was just awful. And I was rooting for the Alien by the end of it. Like... <laughs> it looked pretty like the special effects were great the production design was fantastic again but it didn't work and I, I I don't know why it just I don't know how we could get it so wrong having directed the first in the series and you would think you would know how to make an alien film inside out I'm pretty convinced at this point now alien just has two films like yeah just, I, I like the third one actually as well but the the fact that he created I think probably one of my favourite movies was Alien if I had a list, yeah. it'd be up there and it swaps between that and the thing. And I love Alien so much and I was so excited for Prometheus. And I know your expectations will probably always be too high. I appreciate that, even with hindsight. But I was so, so excited to see Prometheus and I went to cinema to see that and I came out of yeah. that just pretty low. I'm not going to lie. I just came out watching that thinking, what have I just watched? Was that really Ridley Scott that delivered that? Yeah, my thoughts exactly that. I was like, what What did I just watch then? I, I had no idea. <laughs> I, was comp- I was completely baffled. And I could, You can tell why like Biggie you'd be excited because he, he made the first Alien, we had brilliant Aliens and then we just had a bunch of sequels that weren't very good and then awful stuff like Alien vs. Predator 1 and 2. Mm. And it's like, right, it's going back to that universe to the helm of the man who created it. Yeah. What could go wrong? Okay. A lot. A lot, yeah. Yeah, evidently. And like, because I remember when they kind of announced Prometheus, it was like, oh, it's a new trilogy that kind of starts the Alien franchise off. And I was thinking like, ooh, that's that, that, that's, that's interesting. I like that. Mm. And I thought that would be a great concept. Um, and actually, a shout out for another podcast that I listened to um, called Sequelizers, who their whole shtick is they take a, fil- a bad sequel to a good film and they kind of pitch a new idea for a, um, a sequel that would be better. 
and they did a they did a season on prequels and they did Prometheus and their version of Prometheus sounds incredible. I want that. <laughs> Seriously, go 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 up and look uh, sequelizers and look for their Prometheus episode because it is really really good. Their, their idea is really sounds good. like a good idea. We could steal for an episode. Pro- <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll cut that out. Um, but I mean. Like I said, it's, I mean, it's not just the sci-fi stuff and the and it, it, sorry, it's not just sci-fi stuff that he does. Obviously, but like Thelma and Louise is an all-time classic. Um, GI Jane as well, which I know kind of some people didn't like, but it is actually now quite well regarded. It's a, it's a really it it's a fantastic. It, it is worth a watch. It's a very it's a, probably a cultural touchstone point as well with having kind of. Um, that story told with a female protagonist. Like, it's a very, very good film. I know a lot of people who think of it quite fondly. Um, and even though I don't like modern war films, I don't like war films in general, but Black Hawk Down was really good. Yeah, Especially oh, yeah. just in I terms of his, his, his direction of the action. So, it is sublime. I love it. I've seen that many yeah, times. Yeah, I just don't know how one director can have so many highs and so many fucking lows. <laughs> <laughs> At least the highs are really good, though. Oh yeah, the high, I mean the highs are like the highest of the highs. They're the high, really, really yeah, good the highs, highs are high, and the lows are forgettable, really. Until you until you started reeling them off, then it was like, oh yeah, he did that, didn't he? Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't remember stuff, some of the stuff. Well, it, it would be one thing if his lows were completely forgettable, but then like you know, we're all mad about Prometheus and Alien Covenant. Like, but we like, don't forget when, those ones, <laughs> even though those films are bad. When you when you sort of when you hear like. Exodus, and then you see his name attached to it and the sort of premise. You've got bit, you've got like high hopes, haven't you? You're like, ah, oh, you know, this could be another epic. Because you know, he, he's a good, he can direct an epic film. Oh yeah, like I think that, well, not, that was the intention. It was supposed to be like like a kind of Jason and the Argonauts kind of thing, wasn't it? It was like this kind of historical fantasy epic. That's what it was supposed to be, and it just got everything so wrong. Looked beautiful, like cinematography was off the charts it was a fantastic looking film but like nobody could act in that one i'm pretty sure if i remember rightly um that's the one with, yeah it's the one with christian bale and joel edgerton in it playing egyptian gods why <laughs> why those people <laughs> so like clearly christian i'm not bale, one to be but... ageist but do you think just maybe he's lost that spark that creative and all that understanding of how cinema works with stories and direction do you think no. his early work is the best work he's gone for because i can't think what he last has done that i've enjoyed apart from I the movies you mentioned i don't necessarily think it's 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 that i think it's it might be just not being particularly circumspect in some of the projects he takes on it might be um it might just be a lack of available opportunities for stuff that really excites him. I don't know. I'm not Ridley Scott. I do know, which I was quite surprised to find out when I was doing a bit of research here. He's 83. Mm. I didn't think he was that old. Yeah. I mean, he, he um, must be uh, getting that way well, now. A lot of his best work at the minute seems to be in TV, which is where a lot of kind of directors and actors are going. Like the, his current project, uh, he's a producer on, but he directed the first two episodes of his Raised by Wolves, mm, which has had... Mm apparently absolutely banging reviews. I still need to see it. Yeah, I do as well. Um, he also, he produced The Good Wife, which I loved. Yes, um, that was a good show. And I didn't realise, but he was behind uh, Halo Nightfall um, in 2014, which was the kind of tie-in series just before Halo 5 came out. Uh, oh, and also Man of the High Castle. I didn't even know he was attached to that, but he mm. was an executive producer on that. So, like, I think a lot of the work that he's doing now seems to be more in the TV realm, even though he's got films coming up. I think his next film 
He's got The Last Duel and Gucci coming out this year, apparently. Don't know anything about them, but I'll be interested to see what they are. Uh, and I, I'll, I will hope they're as good as his highs. <laughs> I just don't want another Prometheus. <laughs> no. Yeah, thanks, Gadget. Uh, so uh, over to you, Stig. Yeah, so for mine, I'm going to choose a relatively new director um, in terms of, you know, the people I think are really great directors. And it's Taika Waititi. He's a New Zealand born. Uh, he's started out his career, kind of came to the forefront with the guys from Flight of the Concords. Um, he's did a bit of acting, writing and directing on that. And then he moved into his first feature film, which was Eagle vs. Shark. Uh, it's a really, it's very Taika Waititi. He, his style is very quirky and quite strange, cringy comedy at times. Uh, and nothing says him more than Eagle vs. Shark. Um, so I actually only actually watched this. I've seen all his other work and I only actually watched this through the night because I thought he's only directed six films. I thought, you know what, I'm going to make sure I've seen everything before I talk about him. And it's just, it's a really funny comedy drama about two introverts who find love with each other at a party where one's dressed as an eagle and the other's dressed as a shark. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's really just heartwarming and funny. And it's that's the kind of stuff that you get through from him throughout his, all of his films. He, like I said, he's directed six films, Eagle vs. Shark, Boy, What We Do in the Shadows. My personal favourite is Hunt for the Wilder People, Thor Ragnarok, and Jojo Rabbit. And throughout every single one of them, you can just see his influence in the writing, because he pretty much writes and directs all of his films. Um, I'm sure on Thor there's probably a bit of a committee there, but with everything else he's written... That so all the comedy, all the script is it comes from him. It's not just him directing people to do that. Um, and you see it especially in films like Eagle vs. Shark Boy and Hunt for the Wilder People. A lot of he likes to bring New Zealand to the forefront in his films. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, he's very good at. Um, I've got a friend who's from New Zealand, and he said Boy and Hunt for the Wilder People is just it felt like growing up. That's what growing up in New Zealand is, is about. Uh, his second feature film, Boy, is, again, it's another comedy drama. This is uh, about a Maori coming-of-age film set in the 80s, about a boy probably roughly the same age Taika would have been at the time. So it feels very much like he's using his lived experiences in that film. Um, comes across great. It's, uh, again... The, the comedy, the drama, the heart, it all shines through. I think that's what he really, what personifies his films. Uh, what we do in the shadows, I think we've discussed that like at length on multiple shows before. It's brilliant. It's one of my favourite comedies of all time. <laughs> it, it takes that mockumentary style and just throws it into a ridiculous situation with vampires. <laughs> It's, it's just so, so good, like yeah. I mean, we, like we said before, go go watch that, um, and then watch his, um, and then watch the TV show as well, which he's had a hand in, obviously producing and and writing in that as well. And then and then his career kind of takes this weird turn. Like, so you've got these kind of personal down, well, down to earth ish films with like the likes of Boy and Hunt for the Wilder People, and he gets given a Marvel job. <laughs> but he completely rejuvenates the Thor character 
Like, I think Thor 1 and 2 are much maligned films, and probably rightfully so. Uh, they aren't really that good. They don't service the character well at all. I think Loki comes... Yeah, they're watchable. But they're watchable, yeah, yeah, but Loki comes across out of that film more interesting than Thor. Yeah, uh, Thor gets his moments in the Avengers films, but, you know, upsets Taika, injects Thor character with his kind of humour and his th- fun, and it just blows, like, the character of Thor up completely. Like, I think he went from a lot of people's, like, bottom tier to the people, to the character that that people like the most. And it's not for, not everyone likes him most, but I know, I know a lot of people that... You know, didn't really care about Thor. Now, all of a sudden, he's the favorite, and I th- that's all down to Taika, really, and his writing mm. and his directing of that character and changing that. Like the comedy in Thor one and two is all about the fish out of water, and then Taika's basically made Thor more funny, more quippy, more warm to like other characters as well. He's very standoffish in the previous films, and then he's obviously around that he's created characters like Korg, who he plays himself. So a lot of Taika's films as well, he, he he'll play a character himself, whether it's just a quick cameo or a you know a major side character. He, he then brings himself into it, and Korg's an amazing character. And you know, with Thor, he brought Jeff Goldblum into the MCU, and more Goldblum is always a good thing. <laughs> I think that's a law of the universe, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You got someone with Taika's, uh, you know, comedy writing and skills. Give that to someone like Goldblum, and it's just. It's gold, absolute gold. Um, what I, I realise that I'm doing kind of here is just rolling out his films here, but as he's only done six, this is kind of what I, why I just kind of I love his films, and I just kind of want to. That's what I want to do really is just talk about his films. Um, so yeah, no, cool. his next one, Hunt for the Wilder People. Like I said, I consider this his best film. Uh, I think everybody should, you know, go out the way to try and see this film. It's about a young delinquent called Ricky played by Julian Dennison. He goes to live with bad-tempered Heck, who's played by Sam Neill and his wife, Bella. Uh, Bella suddenly dies and Ricky runs away because he doesn't want to A, live with Heck, or B, go back into the foster care system. But he stupidly runs off into New Zealand bush, which is miles and miles and miles and miles of forestry, which if you don't know what you're doing, you're pretty much dead. So... Uh, Heck goes after him to try and bring him back and then gets injured in the on the way back. So, you know, like Lee Eagle versus Shark, he brings his style of comedy and flair to this, the heartwarming tale. It's, there's some really poignant moments in this film that is quite heartbreaking at times. Uh, but he manages to mix all of that, but with caricatures of situations of people, but not making it too absurd. He's got this really great way of mixing silly situations with real moments and that's all like perfectly done in hunt for the world of people it's sharp it's witty it's hilarious and sweet and like it has a really great brilliant final act which is like you know it's been mentioned already thermal and louise it's it, it kind of riffs off that in the final um scenes it's it's really really good and then recently he's obviously got he's won an oscar for his most recent film jojo rabbit um Again, this is a film because of what he does with it. It requires his kind of ability to take something serious and mix it with the absurd and <laughs> treat it with respect. I think he really nails that with this film. I think that's what I think that is his talent. That is what he can do is that he can make something sound that sounds ridiculous and sounds, you know, actually quite offensive 
when you when you when you first read read about what he was going to do, but the way he executes it is so well done and with such care that you actually say, "Oh yeah, actually that works." And so what this film is is Jojo is a boy who is very much indoctrinated into um, like blind nationalism. Like he's been recruited for the Hitler Youth. This film is set within the dying days of World War Two. And he finds out that his mother is sheltering a Jewish girl. So it's kind of, you know, this it's a typical kind of setup for a small village film set in World War II. But then he throws in this satire and the fact that Jojo's imaginary friend is Adolf Hitler himself. <laughs> and it's <laughs> it's an absurd concept. Absolutely absurd concept of, oh, this boy's imaginary friend is Adolf Hitler. And Taika plays Hitler as this ridiculously over the top character but again like i said it's done with the right tone and he and he absolutely nails it and it's it's a film very much a film about identity like i said jojo is wrestling with his conscience against his nationalism and it's clearly taika's unfiltered artistic vision you can feel that in every second of this film it's a fantastic script every member of the cast is brilliant uh particularly sam rockwell and he just brings this quirky and emotional part to it. And that's what he does. And that's what I love about his films is that they're so quirky and they're so heartwarming, but he also is, he's able to mix that with real, real heart and emotion. What do you think of the, uh, the recent announcement of his, uh, well, potentially his next project? Oh, the star Wars one. Mm. Yeah, it's brilliant. Like again, he's, he's doing another Thor. So, you know, the rest of the MCU guys kind of got three films and that was it. But he's getting to do Thor again, which I think is really good. Like I said, I think the first two were they're not great. So it's kind of like they started again with this new version of Thor. Um, he did. He directed, in my opinion, the best episode of season one of The Mandalorian as well. Yeah, I agree. Which is that last one. And, and again, in that, there's that little moment with the stormtroopers. Mm. And that's, that's pure Taika Waititi. And if he brings yeah, that... So he, he... Yeah, I agree. into a Star Wars film I'm all in like I think if anyone's going to deliver obviously <laughs> our fellow podder extraordinaire Jeebus has uh, torn apart the Star Wars universe but I think if anyone could pull that back perhaps is maybe him I think he can deliver that mix of what we expect these days from modern movies I hope so yeah I mean he's already proven with Thor that he can handle a large character in a large budget film inject his own style into it and and make it work for the masses it's an it's an interesting because he brings a lot of small screen style to the to the movies like with especially with with thor it's the, it's almost like sitcom writing like the yeah. way like the jokes kind of come thick and fast and but when you go back to it like you look down his imdb page like he, he did like five episodes of stuff like like the in between us and he he did like um the TV series of what we do in the shadows did quite a lot on that. And, you know, old shows like super city for all he can do, like the kind of the big bombast, which is what you got in Thor Ragnarok. And what I assume he'll bring to star Wars. He can do the, he can do the sharp short dialogue that endears you to characters. And it's quite a skill to be able to kind of navigate both the high end, big budget stuff, but also bring in that low budget, that kind of in the edge that he has with his dialogue. Yeah. It's, he's a fantastic director. He's he's got that really annoying thing as well where he's not just good at one thing, but he acts, he writes, he directs, he produces, he does like everything, and like he's brilliant at it all as well. So, <laughs> and he's just a fun guy. I follow him on social media, 
and he did a lot of stuff yeah, I do. Uh, recently, lockdown and stuff, and, and it, it just it's just really fun. Like he's a re- he looks like sounds like a really cool guy, and yeah, I think I absolutely love his films. I have not of the six films I've seen all of his films, and I don't think there's a bad one in them at all. Yeah, I think he's got a bright future ahead of him. Definitely mm-hmm. agree. Uh, so yeah, uh, uh, Demi, you're up next. I'm going to talk about uh, Steven Spielberg Who? for my pick. Um, when I was thinking about this, I'm I'm not really one for sort of picking up on directors and how they shoot things and you know they shoot it this way and you can tell it's their film because of this. Um, so I just sort of picked somebody that's directed a load of films that I've liked over the years. And Steven Spielberg's sort of films, they've always been around like ever since I can remember watching films. Um, <laughs> his, his films have been one of the like main reasons I, I enjoy cinema. Um, things like growing up watching things like uh, the... Raiders of the Lost Ark, or all, all the Indiana Jones films, um, E.T. E- even even like Jaws, when I was a kid watching that, like I was far too young to watch it, but I was hooked. Like I was so gripped by it. It, it was so I don't, a really good way of building tension. Um, and I just like I, I like how varied he is as a director as well. You know, he can do sort of the thrillers. He can do the sort of uh, biopics, uh, war movies with like Saving Private Ryan, uh, sci-fi. He's done a lot of great sci-fi movies. Um, through growing up, he's always been turning out films that I've enjoyed. Like I say, like growing up through through the eighties, there's been his, his um, Indiana Jones movies, E.T. Uh, in into the nineties, things like Jurassic Park, uh, Saving Private Ryan, uh, Schindler's List. Uh, it's just I I think he's a really really good good direct, a great director. Um, a bit like Gadget. I'm not. Um, I'm not a fan of every single film that he's done. You know, I really, I really dislike Hook. Um, I don't know how everyone else feels about that. Um, even yeah, at the I'm time when I was when I watched it at the cinema, I thought this is terrible. Uh, but I, I don't. <laughs> I don't know everybody else's viewpoint on that film. To be honest, um, I, I don't like hate Hook. Yeah, I quite like it. But yeah, maybe uh, it's just me. No, 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 Steven no, Spielberg hates Hook. So here, how oh, does he? Yeah, he hits. Oh, good lad. Good lad. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, just just yeah, just looking through like his his catalogue of films, and it's just it's just amazing. Yeah, I mean, it was at one point it was almost like a seal of quality, wasn't it? You know, when you think of the movies that he released, you got excited when a new Steven Spielberg movie was coming out because you. you, you you expect almost like a, um, a well-told story, don't you? Because there was always this sort of narrative that went through his movies that just sort of took you on a journey, a ride, and it was delivered um, so well. Um, he always generally picked great actors for his movies. I know Harrison Ford obviously cropped up in quite a few of his, but um, yeah, he's, uh, yeah, I'm a massive fan of Spielberg. Um, it's very yeah. hard to really narrow down a favourite, to be honest. You're always going to get like uh, great music as well, because like John Williams does the music for most of his films. So um, he also he does that like he always does that that like seems to do that shot where he sort of zooms in on one of the characters' faces <laughs> and you just see the sort of emotion in the face. Well, the jaws shot. Yeah, like that. Uh, he does it to um, like Laura Dern in Jurassic Park as well when she sees the uh, Brachiosaurus for the first time. And you're sort of like drawn into like her disbelief and amazement before you see why she's seeing that. 
Uh, he does that in a lot of uh, a lot of his films. Great, great actor, uh, great actor, great director. I think um, one of my favourite moments from him, which really surprised me how well he delivers it, is that opening to uh, Indiana Jones and the uh, Temple of Doom with the the musical. I can't imagine how difficult that must have been to pull that off, set that up, and uh, um, you know, with uh, his wife to be. Uh, oh, her name's just gone from me now. I can't think. Uh, Kate Capshaw. Uh, when she does that, um, oh, what's the name of the musical? The song that they sing? It's gone. But do you remember the opening to uh, The Temple of Doom? Where um, Indiana Jones has to uh, swap over the gem that they've got um, at a table in a restaurant. And they've got yeah. this big musical number going on in the background, um, which obviously turns into chaos. But the the setup for that, because um, it's not something you really expect from Spielberg, the way he does his movies. All of a sudden, you've got this musical opening the, the movie. Uh, yeah, I, I just thought that was really stunning. I always remember that for some reason. Funnily enough, um, he, the, I think the next movie he's got coming out is uh, West Side Story. Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah. So This just, again, points to what you said about his variety. Yeah, it's just he does so many different varieties. One of my favorite things about Spielberg as well is he um, didn't finish film school, and he then went on to make Jurassic Park and Schindler's List in the same year, two absolute masterpieces in the same year, and then he submitted Schindler's List as his final film to finish film school to, to pass his grade. <laughs> <laughs> A plus, I think. Yeah. <laughs> That's a power it move, is, that, isn't it? Isn't it? Just a, it's a B+. Here's my film, Schindler's <laughs> List. It's I mean, Jaws, I mean, Jaws just had me terrified of water. To be, well, not any water, just uh, big ocean water. It took me a while to get over that, I have to say, going out swimming. Uh, that, that's a fantastic movie, yeah, Jaws. Yeah, there's a few blind spots I still have with Spielberg. Like, I still need to watch Close Encounters. Um, I only watched Jaws, actually, for the first time a f- couple of years ago. But it's absolutely amazing, isn't it? It's like my, it, I've probably ranked that as my second favorite film behind Jurassic Park of his. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's still, still so good. The problem is with Spielberg, though, for all the good he does, I mean, he did do Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. He did? Yeah. That was yeah. shocking. That? Raiders is my favorite of his. So then to have him do another indie movie and potentially another, I just don't know. I don't but know. He also did Ready Player One, which might be the most offensive film I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> I've not seen that yet. It's not. Yeah. Well, it's 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 one of those films that if you haven't read the book, it's a bit shit. If you have read the book, it's fucking awful. <laughs> it's, like, it's like it's like it's like two levels to it. And apparently, he's attached in some way to do the Ready Player Two oh, God. film, which the book is even, is worse. The book is dreadful, and the film I can't imagine would be any better. Um, but I I like. I've seen a lot of bad films at cinema, but when I went to see Ready Player One, it's the first time I was actually legitimately angry. <laughs> at a film because I understand adapting that book for the for the cinema is difficult because it's a lot of 80s nerd kind of fanboying kind of thing I get it it's a hard film to make and a hard film to make because you need to sell this to a wide audience and like you know explaining why one of the um you know the, the first key you have to get by beating a rather infamous Dungeons and Dragons dungeon that's not going to go well with a cinema audience because that's just too much. I get that. But what he turned out was so bad. There was so much completely changed on it. And the real even down to like the kind of the kind of alien nature of how characters looked in the Oasis, it didn't make any sense. It lost all of the emotional impact. They 
changed so many scenes. They kind of made Artemis completely pointless in the whole story. Oh, God, I was so mad at it. Literally, I'm still mad at it, in fact, because for all of its flaws, I I really do love the original book. Good God, that film was bad. Jurassic Park was good, though, wasn't it? (laughs) We'll end on that rather than slating slating (laughs) him for Ready Player One. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for that, Doomy. So... um, it's my uh, topic for the pod, so uh, I'm going to go with two, but I'm only going to talk about uh, the other one very briefly. Um, I was torn between who I wanted to talk about, but uh, I just wanted to mention uh, Oliver Stone, um, who, amongst many of his movies, gave us uh, Scarface, um, Platoon, Born on the 4th of July. Uh, but my favourite of his is JFK, um, a film that basically combines political thriller, family drama, criminal investigation, and a courtroom drama, and almost as a documentary. The director's cut, for me, is essential viewing. Um, I don't know, have any of you guys seen this? No. No? I implore you to watch JFK. And I believe it's possibly Kevin Costner's greatest performance, particularly the final closing speech that he does uh, for the Warren Commission. Um, It's just a fantastic story. It's a, yes, it's a conspiracy theory. It's his Oliver Stone's done a lot of research, but it, it, it's a great, great delivery of a point of view of what happened to JFK when he was assassinated and the, the reasons behind it. Um, it's tense. It's a long movie. If you want to see the director's cut, it's about three hours plus. Um, and you do need to pay attention because there's a lot of information thrown at you. But um, I... I I must have seen it four or five times, and I know it's a long movie, but I just, I think it's brilliant. It's just fantastic, fantastic tension for um, a story that really does make you think about um, a, obviously, the fact that a president could be assassinated in the first place, because it's not really a common thing, as far as I understand, looking at past history. Um, so I just think the fact that this actually happened uh, live, obviously, and television as well, um, is absolutely shocking. Um, and the Zap Ruder film uh, footage is also included in the movie, and it's as shocking as you expect it to be if you've never seen it. But uh, I, I just please track this film down just to make me happy that you've seen it. I think um, it's on it's, uh, Prime Video. Yeah, it, it's also. I don't know if the, uh, the the full cut is there, but it, it, it's great either way, whichever way you watch it. But um, I finally decided to go with uh, a French Canadian auteur that um, has basically built up his reputation um, internationally after the sort of I'm going to say moderate success, but he actually did quite well uh, of his movie Prisoner, and it's uh, Denis Villeneuve uh, when he released the Prisoners in 2013. It sort of brought his quality of work to the spotlight. Um, it starred Hugh Jackman, Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, the plot sort of revolved around the abduction of two girls and the arrest of a young man um, who had a low IQ, um, who was released, who was um, arrested and then subsequently released by the police. And then the father of uh, one of the girls, which is Hugh Jackman, took the guy hostage. Um, it's a hard movie to watch uh, due to the subject matter and the violence um, that ends up um, forming the main part of the movie. Uh, but Dennis managed to pull out a performance from Hugh Jackman, which I feel he hadn't quite delivered yet in any of the movies he's already previously appeared in. And I just felt that um, it was a side of Hugh Jackman that we'd never seen before. A really sort of um, subtle, emotional performance as a father. Um, so if you haven't seen it, I do suggest uh, you 
um, catch that. Um, after success of this, he ended up uh, uh, releasing Sicaro, but um, I've actually uh, mentioned that on the pod before. Uh, so I won't go uh, into too much detail about that. But I, again, I implore you to uh, watch Sicario if you haven't seen that. It's an incredibly tense movie to watch, but it's it's just so good. Um, but his next movie after that was uh, Arrival, uh, which starred uh, Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner. Uh, this film follows sort of a, a linguist who's enlisted by the United States Army to discover how to communicate with extraterrestrial aliens who arrived on Earth. Uh, before any of the tensions led to war. Um, something about Dennis um, and the actors that he picks, he, he just, it's all about the performance. He lets the actors kind of breathe into the role. Um, the movies are quite long, I think you find, um, particularly with Arrival and the, the final movie I want to talk about. Um, he, he just has a great way of getting a performance out of um, the actor, and particularly with Amy, because it also deals with grief. And the pressure um, on her character about how to um, basically try and communicate um, not only with an alien race, but trying to encourage um, 11 nations to work together to accept this gift that the aliens have brought with us before the usual military action of blowing shit up. Um, the cinematography, um, he enlisted a guy called Bradford Young, who... Um, is when they see us and solo um, a Star Wars story. Um, it's fantastic because it's a lot of use of natural lighting, uh, which is sort of perfect fit for this vision. And the arrival of the aliens is beautifully done. Um, and there's this sort of undercurrent tension throughout this movie, um, which I think is really well delivered. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen Arrival. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, I've seen Arrival. Yeah. Um, the one thing I loved more about more of anything in that film was the design of the aliens. Yeah. Like, I loved that they were so unearthly and that you didn't actually get to see that much of them. It was mostly kind of their legs. Um, but, like, even kind of when they passed through into where, into that kind of, through the force field. And, yeah, it just, everything about them was so ethereal and strange. It wasn't like your traditional Hollywood aliens where it's someone with different colored skin or someone with kind of a little bit of prosthetics on their head or, you know, the kind of your, your 90s yeah. Star Trek aliens. It wasn't anything like that. And I really, really appreciate that because when you, like that tension that you got in the first kind of half of the film when, you know, the, the, the get in, Amy Adams, it is Amy Adams, yeah? Amy Adams and um, yes. Jeremy Renner kind of get in there Jeremy Renner. when you first see them. And you just see this kind of thing in the fog. And it's like it's almost like a trunk of a tree. And they don't know what it is. Mm. And it moves and it's just like, shit, that's it. That's what they are. It's like, whoa. It's like, okay, okay, we're sat here. And the like the way it's all presented and the kind of the framing of every shot is just beautiful. Yeah, it's very subtle. And and it just I like um again, sort of very Ridley Scott, funny enough, um, because leading to the next movie I'll talk about shortly. But um they have a very similar visual style of sort of building that you know, the universal, the world that they're trying to deliver there. I, I totally agree. And Stiggy, I think you're a fan of Arrival as well, aren't you? Uh, hmm. Oh, maybe not. I'm more a fan of all his <laughs> other work. I've, I've, I've seen five of his films. I think he's only done seven feature films. Yeah, it's not like yeah, uh, the other I, ones are sort of indie stuff. I've seen, I've seen five of them and it was probably my least liked of the bit. I don't know whether I need to revisit it, um, but it didn't, it didn't have the impact on me that his other films did. Sure, but uh, it, it, I mean, it looks gorgeous for one, I you know, you, and it's very well directed. You know, 
but I don't yeah. know something about it just didn't grip me as much as his other work. Yeah, I, I, I really liked fan. it. Like like you said, um, Biggie, it, it is very subtle, but at the same time, very sort of suspenseful at, at the same time. You know what I mean? It was a nice combination of um, the, the other plot to do with um, Amy and her family to be, um, and um, the aliens. You know, it wasn't just about them. It was all about her performance as well. Um, yeah, I, th- I, th- I thought it was excellent. But uh, yeah, the, the the final choice that I, I chose of him, which is maybe an obvious one, but uh, it blew me away when I saw it. Um, and that's of course Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Yeah. Um, it is a sequel, um, which was interesting uh, as a first, I think, for him. But and stars uh, Ryan Gosling uh, playing K, a Nexus Nine replicant Blade Runner, who uncovers a secret that threatens to destabilize society in the course of civilization. Um, he again worked with um, visually um, the cinematographer was Roger Deakins who not only um, did he work with him on Sicario but uh, Shawshank Redemption Skyfall uh, to name a few of his movies but what the two of them did was take what Ridley Scott originally envisaged and I would say expanded visually what this future dystopia would look like the, the vistas that they came up with this movie just blew me away um, I have only seen it at home um, I didn't go to cinema to see it uh, we was going to but uh, I can't remember what happened we just didn't make it in the end but it's a long movie um, yeah it is it is a little bit existential so again I'm not 100% sure how much I would have actually enjoyed if I'd seen it in the cinema because it would be a long movie to take that all in um, I can now appreciate it at home with subtitles and understand a little bit of uh, what some of them are talking about, particularly Jared Leto, who uh, does a bit of mumbling throughout the movie at times. Um, so I really appreciate the subtitles for that. But um, yeah, just visually, um, it was a great performance from Ryan Gosling, I must say, as well as a few of the other characters in the movie. But uh, yeah, I just visually blown away by that movie. I just thought the, the cinematography was just incredible what they created when, um, whether it's the waterfall coming out of um, the side of uh, one of the areas they visit, whether it's the, the hum- humongous giant statues that uh, they walk through, um, whether it's to go and see a particular character, which I don't want to ruin for anybody here who hasn't seen it, um, where you go to meet them. Um, yeah, it's, it's just, it was visually amazing. It's exactly what I wanted. If anyone was ever going to try I wouldn't say better Blade Runner because Blade Runner for me is an incredible movie and it, it's outstanding on its own. But I think for anyone to try and take on Blade Runner, I guess Dennis Villeneuve was probably one of the only people that could ever have done it. And I love it. I think it's incredible. And I watched it again last night. Um, yeah. Please see it on a big screen at home if you can. Surround sound. Just go all in. A whole opening scene with uh, Dave Bautista in it was just incredible. Yes. Again, just a kind of a, another little master masterclass in like ten minutes of tension. It kind of it 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 did that same thing that you got at the beginning of um, Inglorious Bastards, where you had these just two characters talk and you don't really know what's going to come out of it at the end, but you know it's probably not going to be good. Mm. And I mean, it, it obviously cemented as well how good an actor Dave Bautista is, and how good a performance a good director can get out of him. Because obviously up to mm. that point, we'd mostly known him for. Um, Drax, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, hadn't we? Yeah, as Drax, yeah. which was he's good at, but it's not the most, it's not the heaviest lifting an actor would ever have to do. 
in acting terms as opposed to muscular terms. Um, but yeah, that sequence was absolutely phenomenal, and I love the I love the change in visual style when they move out of LA towards Vegas, and it becomes the kind of that orange desert. Yeah, and it's the whole color palette of the film changes from that point. In fact, um, apart from the final. Um let's just say fight in the movie a lot of it is at daytime whereas yeah, Blade Runner was at night the original it was um, entirely at night so yeah the it's, it's quite interesting 30 yeah, seconds of it um, yeah no that film is just it is just wonderful all over and I, I, I get what you were saying he didn't try to better Blade Runner he just tried to expand it which because yeah. when when I first heard about it I thought why would you do a sequel to Blade Runner because the book didn't get a sequel yeah. And there isn't that much kind of expanded universe content for it out there. I thought it was going to fall flat on its ass. I really did. Yeah. Um, and then I saw the trailers and I was really worried because the trailers like, picked up a few a few of the action sequences from it. I thought, oh, no, please don't let them make an action film out of Blade Runner because like, Blade Runner had action, but it was all very small scale and it was all, yes. you know, it was two characters chasing each other mostly. And I'm really glad that he kind of threaded the needle between making something that was kind of... I know it didn't do the best it could have at the cinema, but it did pretty well. And it wasn't an out-and-out action film. It stood by itself as a film as well. You didn't really need to see Blade Runner to get most of it. You just need to have an understanding of the major players. Um, Yeah, no, absolutely superb film. He's got great... um, Well, you've already said how good these films look, but he's just got a a way of making his films look amazing and he's and he's so good at tension building tension he knows how to build tension so well in his films like say the, the bits in prisoner where he takes the young lad um hostage there's the bit it, the whole of enemy if you've seen enemy that thing is just absolutely it's an absolute head fuck of a film it's <laughs> I, I haven't had a chance to see it yeah, yeah it's, honestly it's you come this. out of that film you're just like what like it's one of those ones we have to sit and think about it and probably read up about a few things on on theories and stuff because it is just it's just a head but the Sicario obviously the car scene in that is pure tension like he's just so good at it and I'm so looking forward to June because I think it's gonna he's got a wonderful cast he's got an eye for just cinematography and direction and and it's it's gonna look amazing and whether where whether we see that at the cinema or on the small screen, I don't know yet. Mm. But uh, I am looking forward to June so much, and he's after seeing Blade Runner twenty forty nine. He was the perfect director to take on that that job because I've I've yeah, heard that June is an unfilmable book before. That and he seems the tra- I mean the trailers seem to, to to show that he's got something there. So I think yeah. Well, I mean we've I think we've all seen the original Dune, and that would kind of lend credence to the fact that it would be unfilmable. But, yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic. Like, seeing seeing the trailer and seeing the visuals on display, seeing even just, like, how the characters look and um, that kind of reveal of the sandworm at the end, it was just like, okay, okay, De- okay, Dennis has got it right. Yeah. He's got it right. Whatever it's going to be, whether whether he manages to get the story across well, it's going to look fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm all for seeing it in IMAX. Okay, thank you, everybody. Um, so uh, now we have Gadget with the reviews. That is The Inquisition. Yes, we put a call out upon Twitter asking for your favourite directors. And we got, well, we got a fantastic response, if I'm perfectly honest. So let's dive straight in. Ben, at XBenBlasterX on Twitter 
says, this may be because I recently finished a run of the new 4K editions of Lord of the Rings, but Peter Jackson is one of my all-time faves. He managed to bring Middle-earth to life in spectacular fashion, made a great monster romp in King Kong, and his recent World War One documentary was just incredible. I, I like Peter Jackson. Or rather, I would say I like Lord of the Rings. I didn't like the Hobbit films. I haven't really seen yeah, much man. else of what he's done. Like, I didn't see King Kong, but I heard it was good. I heard Have you seen his early, early stuff? I, I like, like King Kong. Dead. I thought it was good. Brain yeah. Dead, Bad Taste, they are very see, funny. I've seen Brain Dead, but... And you can't believe he did Lord of the Rings. I, know, I, can't, I can't, like... I, I can't see how a director went from them to Lord of the Rings and sm- absolutely yeah. smashed it with this huge epic yeah, I can't believe it it's, it's, he's, he does sorry he did such a brilliant job with Lord of the Rings yeah yeah, when it, yeah they were, what, you, you can't imagine anybody watching Brain Dead and then going that's him that's the guy <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a, it's a, he, he must have had the most incredible pattern to be able to go to New Line Cinema and say like okay this is what I've done I want to take a cast of very expensive actors to New Zealand for 18 months to record three films back-to-back, release them once a year, and, by the way, also set up my own special effects house in the process. Like, anybody would have thought he was mad. <laughs> I, went, I, went, I went to that special effects studio when I was in New yeah, went, Zealand. Uh, yeah, me went and to my workshops. Sis- yeah, me and my sister were there. Um, and it, <laughs> it's so small, really. Like, we just sort of found the address and just sort of started wandering around. And I just like, walked into the offices and like somebody was like, can we help you? I was like, oh, we're just like having a look around. Like, we're just, <laughs> it's like, you, you, you can't, you can't be in here. It's like, okay, sorry. So like all these like Lord of the Rings, like orcs, statues everywhere and things like that. It's pretty cool. In fact, I think uh, I saw you in the background in The Hobbit. <laughs> <laughs> no, because The Hobbit's all CGI. Yeah, it's a, car- it's, 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 it's a cartoon. Um, <laughs> Rob Frodsham, at Bob Frod. Uh, there's a lot of directors I'll watch out for, but I'll say the Coen brothers, with with my favourite of theirs, by a bug's dick, being Miller's Crossing. <laughs> or Sergio Leone with Once Upon a Time in the West. I do love a Coen brothers film. Mm. They make some of the... Yeah, they I don't do. know how they do it. They make some of the weirdest high-budget films. Yeah. Like, The Men Who Stare at Goats. Might be one of the strangest films I've ever watched, but they got such a huge cast for it. Or Burn After Reading, which I love, but no one else seems to like. I liked Burn <laughs> After Reading. I think, um, I think with, with well, with the the one thing the Coen Brothers managed to do is they managed to make pointless films. Like all the stories in Burn After Reading kind of culminate into no one being any further forward and one character being killed. You know, it's like or like the Big Lebowski. There's all this mm. chaos that follows the dude around. And none of it's consequential to the world. Yeah. It's just like a series of escalating incidents that happen. I never thought about Maybe that. Just then... want his rug sorted out or something. Yeah, that's that's all it is. It's just yeah. a, a misunderstanding leads to a load of chaos, hostage situations, blackmail, porn stars. <laughs> it, it's just the most surreal film in the world, and I don't know how they get away with it. It's but it's brilliant. How that, it comes together yeah, is entertaining. The many uh, many stir at goats. That's the uh, yeah. is that a John Ronson book? Yeah, it is. Yeah, because I, I remember I remember watching. I, I can't remember if I'd watched watched the film or read the book first, and I was just like, I couldn't. I don't know. I think <laughs> I think I'd seen the film, and then when I was reading the book, and it was like a sort of investigative journalism from John Ronson. I couldn't get into the fact that it was like real journalism. Yeah, I was like, I thought I've seen this. I've seen this film. And it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't get that this is real. 
like when I'm reading these words. So it sort of ruined the book for me, but I enjoyed the film. But they're, they're so great at whether it's together or by themselves. Again, like Spielberg, is that they have the ability to do completely the opposite end of the scale. You have something yeah. like Miller's Crossing or Fargo and mm, and um, oh, what's the other one called? I'm gonna have a quick look. No Country for Old Men, which is No Country oh, for Old yeah. Men, is so, so relenting and so brilliant. Compare that mm. to something like the Hood Brooker Proxy or the Big Lebowski <laughs> and things like that. They're just the, the completely opposite end of the scale. Or, or Hail Caesar, which I hated, but like it's so different to like those kind of films. And I think the ability to have that variety and still knock out great films is uh, yeah, it's a great skill to have. Or when they when they adapt a text and they take um, Homer's Odyssey and make uh, Oh Brother Where Art Thou, <laughs> which is a delightfully off the wall mad film, but utterly brilliant with it. Mm. Yeah, brilliant directors the uh, the Coens. Uh, Terrestrial Extra at Terrestrial Extra. Uh, this is very tricky. After deliberation, I w- I want to pick Terry Gilliam and Twelve Monkeys. Gilliam's style portrays a fantasy madness that he draws me into. However, Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey and The Shining, but then Coppola, oh, Scorsese, Tarantino. I think Terrestrial Extra is having a crisis of confidence (laughs) over his choices here. But all excellent choices, all excellent directors, all very different directors as well. Like, you know, I mean, the world loves Terry Gilliam, but you never put him in a list with Kubrick. Scorsese, Tarantino. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna talk about Kubrick, um, only because like he's directed one of my favourite films in uh, Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, same here. Yeah. I, yeah. I just love that film. But um, I got to talk about John Ronson again. Um, yeah, there was an article that he wrote in the early two thousands um, called Stanley Kubrick's Boxes. I think it was. I wrote it for the Guardian, and um, it, it was approached by somebody uh, close to uh, Stanley Kubrick. And asked to go meet him at one of his uh, estates, and he went. And uh, it, every room in his estate was just full of these boxes, and each box was just full of like sort of research on his films that he'd done. So he had a room right. full of boxes. Like uh, his rooms are going to be little box rooms; they're going to be huge, and they're just full of these boxes. And they were they were labeled um, Napoleon because he was going to make a, a a biopic on Napoleon. But in the time it took him to do all his all his research. Another uh, studio had made a film called Waterloo that had bombed, <laughs> so they canned it. So he, he, then he made Clockwork Orange, um, and there was things like um, there was another box for Eyes Wide Shut, and he opened it, and it was just it was just pictures of doorways from streets around London. I think John Ronson actually found his own doorway in these pictures. All right, um, and the box was this box was labelled uh, Hooker's Doorway. So basically, he'd sent somebody out to take pictures of doorways because he wanted to look through them all to find the one that he thought was the best representation of a hooker's doorway. Yeah, apparently his attention to detail is insane. The the retakes that the actors have had to do for his movies apparently are legendary. Was it? Isn't it true that he only did The Shining because he wanted to do a horror film? He had no interest in horror in general, but it was just like, I've done sci-fi, I've done drama, I've done weird things, I want to do horror now. And he just picked up The Shining for the sake of it. Yeah, I watched The Shining one, a couple sure of years that. ago again. Uh, great movie. Stephen King hates it. forget how good that is. Stephen King does not yeah, like King The Shining. Yeah, King hates it. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. I've not read, to be fair, I've not read the book, so I can't compare it. But, he prefers the TV uh, adaptation, which is shocking. Um, okay, The Real Rider at Rider555 says, I'll give you three while I'm so generous. How generous of you, Rider. Ridley Scott for Alien. 
Martin Scorsese for Goodfellas and David Fincher for Fight Club. All good. All brilliant. Solid. Yeah. All good choices. Solid choice. Can't argue with any of those. Uh, John Cheatham. Cheatham? Sorry. John Cheatham at John Cheatham 1. Bong Joon... Is it Bong Joon Ho? Bong Joon Ho. Is that Bong right? Bong Joon Ho. Yeah. Yeah, Bong Joon-ho. Yeah. His film's message is on point, and his mastery of, of genre and the way he can slip between different styles of film, even within his own works, is dazzling. Clearly at the height of his powers, it's exciting to think what he might do in the future. With Parasite winning Best Picture, he's going to have every studio just hurling money at him. He's going to do some excellent things. Definitely. Has he got anything lined up? I'm sure that, I'm sure I read somewhere that he's got a new film coming out soon. Um, I don't know, but like just from what John said there, I completely agree. Like the way that he manages to switch the style, the type of film you think you're watching within the film mm. is just brilliant. It's like Memories for Murder. There's parts of that. Like that's a, it's a really gripping tale. That film. That in that in it, all of a sudden they'll just put in these comedic moments, which seem like they shouldn't be in there but they work so well and like yeah Yeah. he's just so great at doing that kind of thing and it's the same with Parasite there's moments of comedy within Parasite that yeah again work within the context of the film I still haven't seen I haven't seen any of his films I'm going to have to rectify that soon oh you are it's it's so good I've I've seen a few but there's a lot more I want to watch Um, next up we have uh, Derek Pennington at One Line Derek Don Hertzfeldt Known to many for the hilarious web short Rejected series, but in my opinion, the single greatest animated film of all time with It's Such a Beautiful Day. Absolutely breathtaking. Has any of us seen that one? I any of this at all. I haven't. Sorry, no. No? It's on my list. I'm going to check it out. Found an animated film that Stig hasn't seen. <laughs> we will, t- we will <laughs> check this one out, Derek. The list. We'll, we'll check your work. Yep. Yes. Uh, Lee Davies at Leroy Francisco. It's got to be Kubrick for me. His run of Doctor Strangelove, 2001, Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, The Shining, and Full Metal Jacket is unbelievable. I mean, that's a pretty strong run. Can't deny that. That's classic after classic after classic right there. Mm-hmm. Um, sneaky at I Am Sneaky. I, really, I can't really pick one. All my favourite films are scattered amongst many different directors. I guess George Lucas would be number one, as he's produced the classics, as well as Spielberg, but both have made some horrific films too. The feel of a film is more is more what I love. Think Moon. Okay, so yeah, so Sneaky's kind of approaching from the idea that he doesn't like one particular director, but he likes the direction of a film. And Moon is an excellently put together film. One of my favourites of the kind of the last twenty years. Yeah, do you know what? I haven't seen it yet. It's it's Sam Rockwell at his absolute finest. It's seriously one of the best films he's ever acted in, and he's acting against nobody. He's on his own with a robot voiced by Kevin Spacey. Basically it for most of the film. Absolutely brilliant. It's what's his name, isn't it? Um, David Bowie's son, who directed it. Yes. I can't think of his name. Yeah. Duncan Jones. Duncan Jones, yeah. That's it, yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. He did, um, what, was the, what was the one he did with, what was the follow-up that he did to, to Moon? The Sun. What was the follow-up that he <laughs> I'm trying to think of the, the follow-up that uh, Duncan Jones did to Moon, another sci-fi film. Uh, I can't think now. Um, Listeners, this is the sound of us all going to IMDb to see who can find it <laughs> yeah, first. Yeah, that's it. Oh, Source Code, it was. don't know if you've seen that. Source Code, did it? Yeah, he did. I like Source Code. Oh, yeah, I, I yeah. like that. And Warcraft. Forget about that. <laughs> Everybody forgets about that, and it should be forgotten from the annals of history. Uh, Nimrod Hicks emails in. 
Hi guys, not too controversial this, but my director of choice is Stanley Kubrick. We're getting a lot of love for Kubrick here tonight. Shifting from one of the great comedies in Doctor Strange Love through to one of the great sci-fi movies in uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey to one of the best horrors in The Shining to my personal favourite, one of the finest war movies in Full Metal Jacket. Much of Full Metal Jacket was filmed on the Isle of Dogs, but still looks like a convincing theatre of war. And London Dockyard as well. Yeah, I I believed he could do anything. Then, however, Eyes Wide Shut came out. Shame. Keep up the good work. Love to all Nimrod Hicks. Is Eyes Wide Shut that bad? I mean, I haven't heard good things about it, but... Was it that sort of... Didn't he die during the filming of that? That or or close after it or something. Yeah. I think I started watching it once and then never bothered finishing it and never gone back. There's a lot of Kubrick that I haven't seen, if I'm being honest. But 2001 is is amazing. Like, the scenes on the space station is just... It's just they look fantastic. Yeah, yeah. They, well, they yeah. set the the precedent really, basically, for movies in space, didn't they? It was so far back then, and it's still a lot of people copying what he did. Deadbeat Punk, he's emailed again, but not not as long as the last time. Hello again, modest <laughs> escalopes. I'll be brief in round two. Luke Besson, this man is the contrast of cinema. I caught Leon as a young punk and was enamoured with the entire movie. I loved how it was shot, the character interaction, locations, the story. I was far too young to watch it, but it was the first movie that really caught my attention. It's a hell of a movie to watch when you're young. Um, Of course, (laughs) once I found the director's name, I rented out several of his other movies. Fifth Element, Big Blue, Nikita, Subway, Extra Vision had quite the collection of his hits. Then I stumbled upon a little site called IMDB and looked up the filmography. Christ alive, for each gem he's made, he has curled out some cinematic movements. As a writer and director, he has punished us with with the Taxi franchise, Fan Fan and Messenger, a really strange take on June of Arc. Cherry pick the nuggets of gold, flush the rest. Some high, high lows, uh, some, sorry, some high, high highs and some low, low lows. No women, no kids. That's the rule. So I have a real soft spot for the Big Blue. I haven't seen the Big Blue, actually. It's a really nice, sad, heartwarming tale. That's all I will say. Check it out. Did he direct Taxi? I, I quite like that film. The first one. I've not seen the others. Or the I, remake. No. Um, I think one he did. Thing that yeah. I, the one thing that I think really pulls Luke Besson down and really kind of drags him and grinds him into the ground was Valerian. Because, oh, my so. God, like the man who made The Fifth Element, which I adore... With every fibre of my being, I love that film. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's a gorgeous-looking film. And a load of actors on fine form. How can he go from making that in the 90s to making Valerian in 2017? Valerian was dreadful. Oh, God, it was so bad. It was... It tried to do the fifth element thing of being this gorgeous, lush science fiction film, which is visually it achieves. Like It looks beautiful. But he seemed to cast blocks of wood in place of actors. Like, I don't know why people keep casting Cara Delevingne in films. But yeah, God, that film was so bad. I hate it. And it really ruined my perception of Luke Besson. <laughs> I think as a, dire- as a director, he's, he's not really done anything great as a director since The Fifth Element. He's, he's obviously worked, produced and written stuff. Um, been part of some things but just looking at his IMDB yeah just as a director solely director he's yeah I think Fifth Elements like that's the last good thing he did and that was yonks ago 
Yeah, but in Fifth Element, who was the uh, black comedian in that movie? Chris Tucker. Oh, he nearly ruined that movie for me, I have to say. His performance what? in Ruby that. Rod's amazing. Oh, it drives me insane. Just really <laughs> over the top. Just really bugged me when I watched that movie. I don't know why, because I like him in other stuff, but... But that, wasn't that the point of the character though he was supposed to be over the top he was supposed to get on Bruce Willis's nerves oh it got on my nerves <laughs> <laughs> no I loved Ruby Rod I think it's one of Chris Tucker's finest performances yeah I succeeded <laughs> ooh nerves touched uh, John Lister smashiest clear writes in afternoon gents I'm someone who also loves to regularly re-watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy especially around Christmas I was very disappointed with the Hobbit films mostly because they felt so stretched thin and diluted making a single short book into three films was a terrible decision last year I found a cut down version that condenses the trilogy into a single movie and removes almost all the extraneous nonsense it doesn't bring it back to the level of the original trilogy but it's a marked improvement The version I have is called There and Back Again, and found via Reddit. But my favourite director is probably Guillermo del Toro. While I think there's directors that have made better films, del Toro has consistently made films that are always interesting, and his distinctive visual style and focus on production design means I trust anything that he makes will be worth watching. I love his habit of alternating between big-budget action movies and smaller arty fare. The same director that made The Shape of Water and Pan's Labyrinth also made Blade 2 and Pacific Rim. Yeah, that's... I'll go Great with the Del Toro. Yeah. I, like, I love his work. Pants yeah. Big um, hell, boy. The oh, Del- yeah. The, the, uh, have you seen The Devil's Backbone? Yes. Yes. That is just, that's outstanding. Yeah. Yes, it absolutely is. Even going back to like his really early work, like Chronos. Uh, yes. Fucking brilliant. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, Pan's Labyrinth might be one of the best-looking fantasy films I've ever yeah, seen. Yeah, it's so good. great. He's just got such a great mind, doesn't he? For, like, for... Thinking up weird and wonderful weird things, shit. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm like sad because you won't see Silent Hills. Oh yeah, I know. But I always like as well in his films that okay, maybe take Pacific Rim out of it, but they, he relies a lot on um, on physical props and physical effects. Yeah, like when you think like if you go back to like Pan's Labyrinth and like some mm. of the most horrific scenes in that were guys in suits. You know, yeah. it, they weren't CGI monsters in it. Well, Hellboy's uh, like that, or, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, Hell- Hellboy. Majority of it, not the actual. Um, oh, those little things they were chasing around for. Well, that was CGI, but everything else, I think, in it was good. Yeah, there's some some stuff which would be impossible to do with real real world physics, especially when it comes to those kind of monsters. But yeah, like the fact that you know they the could have CGI'd so much of Ron Perlman, but they didn't. Whereas when they did the David mm. Harbour one, I think there was a fair bit of he- Hellboy himself that was CGI just to make it easier on him and stuff like that. You know, it's like the. Everything. I mean, that's also like the difference of like fifteen years between making the films. But yeah, the Hellboy films look great, and everything looked real and chunky, and like translated the comic book really well into physical space. Oh, so good! Del Toro is like a master at that kind of thing. Uh, last up, we have uh, Kurt Lewin at Angry Kurt on the emails. He's sorry for his late reply because he got this in as we were starting to record. He's getting later and later. Bad boy. So, but he's saying my favorite director would have to go to David Fincher. Even though he hasn't directed my favourite film, Whiplash, he has directed many that make my top ten, including Seven, Gone Girl, The Mindhunter TV Show, and my favourite film of his, Fight Club. My mind was blown the first time I watched Fight Club, and even though some people uh, like to deride it these days, I still think it's a banging film and very thought-provoking. Given my love for Whiplash and La La Land, I would say that Damien Chazelle comes in a close second, but Fincher pinches it. That's a hell of a thing to say. Fincher pinches it because Chazelle has only done three films and a mediocre TV show 
and his other first and his other film first man whilst good i did not feel it was anywhere near as good as whiplash and la la land fincher might have some less than stellar films too but i haven't seen them yet i like david fincher i think he's great seven yeah. just i love that movie so much dark as fuck but amazing movie and he's right with uh, blind spot for me. Uh, who's that sorry so, um, uh, seven is a blind spot for me. Uh, oh, it's one of those oh, films. That so good. You haven't seen I it? Know. Oh. No, I ain't seen it now. Oh, mate. I t- uh, that takes precedent over, over uh, Gremlins. Gremlins. That. Yeah. Seven. <laughs> so good. Seriously, you should, you should watch it. It's, it's brilliant. Oh, to watch that movie again yeah. without knowing what's going to happen. Oh, boy. I will, I will add it to my list of, of things to watch. I mean, the thing is, people have talked about David Fincher on this podcast. No one's really mentioned Alien Three. Probably the <laughs> Yeah, they all, even, like I said, even the greats have their off day. <laughs> and it, his first, it was his first film. He was practicing. Yeah, yeah, practice run. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, what were you about to say there about Damien uh, Damien Chazelle there, Stig? Uh, I just agree with Kurt. I think he's got a bright future. Um, I think Whiplash is amazing. I really enjoyed La La Land and I actually, you know, Kurt wasn't as big on it, but I think First Man's brilliant as well and, and Oodles really likes First Man. I know that as well. But uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing what he has to uh, bring to the table in the future because he's very young as well, so got a long career ahead of him. It's it it's it's astonishing that like he's done three films and two of them have been Whiplash and La La Land. Yep. Like cuz La La Land won best Whiplash, yeah. La La Land won best Oscar, didn't it? No. Did it? Uh, best film, sorry. No. Or best musical? It, it, it got called wrong. It nearly it did. It was the one that got called wrong. Um, it was, oh, right. It was actually Moonlight that won, but they called La La Land by mistake. <laughs> it did oh, win, a, right, it okay. won a bunch of other awards, though. Like it's, uh, It won six yeah. other Oscars, so it's you know it did all right. And, and Whiplash won a couple as well, I think, because didn't J.K. Simmons get one for best supporting or something? Yes. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Won three so Oscars. Like, yeah. Yeah, so he's done three films and he's got several Oscars between them. That's a hell of a Not start bad, to eh? a career. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> how's how's it how's he going to top it? Is he going to do a full sweep of the Oscars one year? <laughs> oh, um, first man won an Oscar as well. Oh, he yeah. did as well. Okay, so he's three for three. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> okay, but uh, yeah, that's it. That's the end of the Inquisition. It's been a bumper bump week this week. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you everyone for getting in touch. That's been marvellous. Yeah, thank you, Gadget. So, uh, finally, here's Stig with our release schedule. It's the socials. Yeah, so you can find us on Twitter at Modern Escapism. On there, you'll find a link to all of our episodes, other socials, and Discord. Uh, we'd really love people to come and join our Discord because it's a great little community we've got going on in there now. Uh, if you have any comments, you can either tweet us or email us at modernescapism at gmail.com. And we've also got a streaming schedule going on at twitch.tv forward slash modernescapism. Uh, tomorrow, Gadget is roping some salty sea dogs together in our first monthly group stream and we're going to be taken to the water with Sea of Thieves. Yes, and then Saturday, Oodles is back underwater as he continues his quest through Bioshock for the first time. Monday, Biggie dies. Watch Biggie continue to play through Dark Souls for the first time. And then Wednesday, Gadget is going to continue to be surprised by Mimics with Prey. So if yes. you enjoy... Uh, gaming streams we've got a whole lot of them going on so please drop by on twitch and finally leave us a five-star review on apple podcast because i know we joke about this and say 
leave us five stars that's all we want but five star reviews really helps us get noticed as well it isn't just a silly little joke we make if you the more five star reviews uh we get the more people notice us the more listeners we have and the more great content that we can pump out for you listeners so yeah we'd really love a five star review if you don't do it we'll release the extended cut of crystal skulls there's that too Oh, 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 God, that's a crime against humanity, that. So, yeah, thank you very much. Um, all that's left for me is to thank Doomy, Gadget and Stig for this pod. And we're off to the rap party. That's a cut. out upon Twitter and asked who your favourite directors are. It was a pretty simple question and usually, and as usual when we put out a pretty simple question we got a lot of answers. We like it. Actually no, I'm going to start that again because that sounds really insulting towards the audience. <laughs> <laughs> Please keep that in. Leave it in, yeah. Uh, keep them grounded. Keep them grounded. Keep them grounded.